Tonight's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be difficult, but if you're currently hiring, you face new difficulties. Product fulfillment solutions could relate. They needed to hire an organized, detail-oriented executive assistant, so they turned to our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. That's how they found Christina Rombaletti. She lost her job during COVID-19. She created a profile on ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter identified her as a great match for the product fulfillment solutions role, sent them her profile. Then the CEO reached out to Christina and invited her to apply to the job. Two days later, she was hired. See how ZipRecruiter can help you hire. Try it now for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Hey, let's talk about electric cars. Some people think they're weird, but people think everything new is weird at first. Take dual threat quarterbacks in the 1970s. People thought it was crazy when a quarterback started running. Now it's normal. The same goes for electric cars with longer ranges, plenty of charging stations across the country and faster charging times. Just about anybody can get on board. Find out for yourself. Learn how electric cars are normal at normalnow.com. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're launching a new podcast on Monday, June 29th. It is called the Bakari Sellers Podcast. He has uh, an awesome guest list ahead of you, but he is going to be talking about the election, uh, the moment America is having right now, and a whole bunch more, plus some great celebrity guests. You can subscribe right now, wherever you get your podcast, the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Um, I'm really excited for this one. So coming up, we're going to talk to Don Cheadle and Rob Lowe. I'm going to say something also at the top. First, Pearl Jam. All right, bringing in Don Cheadle in one second. Just wanted to comment on a piece that the New York Times wrote about The Ringer and and me earlier this week. And I only wanted to say two things. One, I'm going to say here what I said to the New York Times in an email interview that I did. I emailed all my answers, which I'll be mentioning again in one second. But we know we didn't do well enough. And I wish it had been a bigger priority for us to. Um, to really make a bigger commitment to diversity than we did. I think, you know, in the moment we're looking at stuff where we, you pursue certain people, it doesn't work out. You feel like you're trying. And I think the moment that the country's having in general these last four weeks is like, if you feel like you're trying, that's actually not good enough. We're going to do better. And the only thing I'm going to say on that is if you know anything about me and, and, how committed I am to all of this stuff, um, to using my platform to try to raise the uh, profile and platform of other people and stuff. This is what I try to do at Grantland, what I try to do at The Ringer. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And when you fall short in some way, which I feel like I did, and I feel like we did, the meaning uh, me and Chris and Sean and Mallory and Julia and Jeff, um, you know, it hurts, but there's truth to it. And we weren't doing well enough. We're going to try to do better. We are committed to it. And I got to be honest, it was one of the main reasons I wanted to go to Spotify. I thought they were going to be the dominant force in audio. Um, and I also wanted more resources and know-how. And I wanted to tap into their HR and their diversity teams and, and really try to reshape our company. And that wasn't something I was going to talk about openly when we did the sale. I really didn't talk about the sale at all. But um, we've known for a while we wanted to reshape what the company was, and we none of us felt like we did well enough. But the thing is, it's 
you know, it's like football. You judge a coach by your record. Um, you judge me by my record and the record wasn't good enough. So the only thing I would ask for is just give us some time. It's incredibly important to me and to everybody I work with to, to fix it. And, and that's all I can ask. So the second piece I just wanted to say, I had a quote in there, quote, it's a business. This is an open mic night. I wanted to give you the full context of that. I did an email interview with the New York times and I wanted to read you the question they actually asked. And then the answer I gave, and as you'll find out, it was not about diversity. So this was the question from the New York Times. Current and former staffers told us that it got harder for young writers, parentheses, including but not limited to people of color, end of parentheses, to get more responsibility and visibility after podcasts became a higher priority at The Ringer in late 2017, early 2018. For example, they said that during the first few months of the rewatchables, there were opportunities for younger, more obscure folks to participate. But by early 2018, it was mostly senior folks like you, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy, and Mallory Rubin. Can you comment on this? My answer was this. This is what I wrote back to the New York Times. That's absurd. We were a startup those first two years trying a whole bunch of different things. Eventually, we realized that podcasts were the biggest financial part of our business and we needed to put our best people in them. Again, it's a business. This is an open mic night. As for the rewatchables, I created that podcast and it was built around me and Chris Ryan. I've hosted the vast majority of them. It's one of our most popular and lucrative podcasts and one of the biggest pop culture podcasts, period. I'm proud of the show and confident how we manage it. End quote. So that was not an answer about diversity. And the question was not about diversity. So I just wanted to get that out there so you actually knew where it was coming from. That's all I have. Thanks for listening to this part. We're going to get to Don Cheadle right now. Don Cheeto is here. I don't know why this took so long. I've had a podcast for 13 years. I don't know where you've been. I don't yeah, know why you've been so hard to book. I blame you. I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I blame myself. You've been in a lot of my favorite movies. You know, it's funny. So I'm going way back, but so Boogie Nights is like a top five movie to me. And the other night, my wife and my daughter were out of the house. My son was at a sleepover. I was all by myself. And I'm like, this is great. I'm just going to watch TV. I'll watch something I've never seen before. And I was flicking channels and it was the start of Boogie Nights. And I was like, ah, fuck it. And I just watched it again. Watching- I don't know. I don't know what it is about that movie. What is it about that movie? You must get asked about it a million times, right? I mean, I think it's it's just, it's, a, it's an amazing film, obviously. Uh, it's sort of two films tonally. Yeah. Yeah, what it what it's able to do, and you know, I I met Paul uh, because of Carl Franklin, who directed Devil in a Blue Dress, and uh, he I don't I don't remember how he met Paul, but he said this this kid you got to meet this kid he's got this movie the movie's amazing, uh, he wants you to play a part in it, and it's about the porno industry. I was like, uh, my parents are still alive, so I don't I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> and he said, no, you got to meet him. He's he's really smart and uh, he's kind of a phenom. So I met with Paul and he was the most confident, you know, self-assured dude I had ever met. And uh, I said, you know, this is just going to be jokes. And, and I read the script and the script was like 167 pages long or something like that. It was, a, it was just massive, but it was very technical and it had all the camera moves in it and all of the things he was going to do with the film in it that weren't really about story at all. It was just how he was going to pull it off. And it was kind of confusing. 
And I remember asking him, I said, are we just going to be like doing a bunch of jokes about, you know, porn industry? And he's like, just, just, you know, just trust me. Okay. You're going to be sad if you say no to this movie, because you're going to, you're going to, you're going to wish you had said yes, if you pass on this. Well, you, you would have been sad. I would have been. I think he was right. He was absolutely right. You know, and, and he pats himself on the back for being very right about all the things he's right about all the time. You know, well, he's a lot like you. He's now all these years later, he's had this incredible career. But when we had him on the podcast about 18 months ago, I couldn't resist. Like, look, I got it. We got to talk about this movie. And it was pretty cool to listen to him talk about it because it was so early in his career. Yeah. You know, and then he follows it up with Magnolia, which was so personal and is a movie that he all these years later kind of feels conflicted about because there are all these things he would probably do differently with that one. With Boogie Nights, I feel like he feels pretty good about what it was. Yeah, I, I I think he does. I think he feels like he achieved everything he wanted to achieve. And I remember sitting with him at the at the screening, at one of the early screenings of it. And when the movie takes that turn right after Little Bill tops himself. Yeah. Looks at me, goes, okay, jokes, giggles, you get it? And I was like, oh, I get it. You know, and that, and it's rare to to be able to do that in a film and still like have the audience stay with you because People want to go on a certain kind of a ride. And then when it it turns and makes you sort of consider the whole other side of this, I think he was very artful and, and, and very masterful at how, at how he pulled that off. Well, one of the fun things about rewatching it 23 years later is just the cast and all of these people at this, you know, in some cases, really early point of their careers. You know, Mark Wahlberg was still had the Marky Mark kind of stigma to him. Philip Seymour Hoffman was like the kid from Son of a Woman. And you go on, John C. Riley. I barely knew who he was. You, yeah. I'd only seen you in one movie. And you go on and on. And it was all these people that have now had these full careers that I have this whole history with. And you watch a movie like that. And it's like seeing a home movie of them really early almost. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, if not the most important aspect uh, of being able to be a good director is being able to cast well and being able to find the people that you're going to be able to get. I mean, I don't think anyone expected Mark Wahlberg's performance in that. And it was the best of anything he's ever done, I, I believe. Um, and everyone, you go down the line, everybody that you mentioned, I think everyone really pulls in at a great performance. And no one is trying to stick out above, you know what I mean? It was a very ensemble feel, uh, feel to making it. There was a very big no asshole rule. And yeah. Everybody just, you know, believed in Paul and believed in his ability and believed in in what it was he was trying to do. And he knew everything that he wanted to do. There was no, it was, there was no wishy-washy uh, nature to how he approached anything. You know, you often do movies and you kind of in it and you're like, I don't know if the director knows what he wants. Paul right. knew it from the very beginning and was stayed true, true to it to the, to the very end. Also had a great what if where you have, it could have been Leo in the, in the Wahlberg part and he turns it down. And yeah. just thinking that pre-Titanic Leo as Dirk Diggler, what kind of movie that is. I actually think it worked out correctly, but it's an interesting what if. Yeah, I can't imagine another, I can't ana- imagine another actor in that part. I think Mark was just amazing. And some of the, the scenes that you're watching, I'm, I'm like, is this improv? I mean, we didn't really do a lot of improv. We would sometimes do little things that Paul would allow in, but he was pretty, you know, pretty secure in what he wrote and, and, and kind of a stickler about his words and what he wanted to be done. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine anyone other than Mark in that role. Me neither. You had some great parts in the nineties as you're becoming you, 
Yeah. What? How? How did you know what parts to gravitate toward, and how important was the director and the whole concept of it? I don't think I ever really knew. The director is something that became very important to me. You know, as I learned that that was the most important seat. Uh, yeah. And really started to understand you needed to be under the helm of someone who had a clear, uh, a clear idea of what it is they were going after. Um, yeah. But I was, I was very, for no other reason than I just decided I was going to be, I was just very picky. I was always just very picky about what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to do a lot of different things. You know, I came out of, of school, uh, I went to California Institute of the Arts. And one of the things that, you know, we really had for us in school was a huge variety. You know, we do Moliere, we do Shakespeare, we do August Wilson, we do Fugard, we do, we just did, a, you know, uh, we just did a lot of different things. And that was something that became what I wanted to to do as I went, went forward in my career. I wanted to play a lot of different roles. I wanted to try to inhabit a lot of different characters. So a lot of the yeses that I would, you know, give to a role, a lot of the, you know, me saying yes to a part was about, oh, this is something that an area I haven't visited before, a story I haven't done, characters I haven't really filled out. Just, it was just more of, I wanted to keep playing and wanted to keep expanding. Um, my my toolbox so that's what it was about uh and directors really like i said became something to focus on i was just very fortunate to work with a lot of great directors just just they just were the ones that were directing these movies so i don't think it was a surprise that the, the roles that i picked in these interesting projects had directors who were very uh very skilled as well well it helped that you were talented too and they, and they wanted to work with you it's you know you get i think you get half credit but exactly. so you, cause I remember devil in a blue dress. It was like, who's that? Yeah. Then, then you did the goat. Yeah. And I had been, yeah, I'm a huge basketball guy. And when I found out it was eight, was it HBO or Showtime? I can't remember. It was an HBO movie. Yeah. Yeah. And when they, I was like, oh, they're doing the goat. Cause I had read the city game by Pete Axlam. So yeah. I knew, yeah. you know, the, the legend of him, there's no footage of him, obviously you just said, how are they going to do this? It's yeah such a depressing story. And, and then it was really, you know, obviously it was what it was and it's worth, I don't know. Does that movie still exist? Is it streaming yeah. anywhere? I think you can get it on Amazon. I mean, I think you can get anything on Amazon. <laughs> oh, cause I never see it, but I, I would write for the younger people out there. I would recommend checking it out. Cause it's, he's this famous street legend. That's right. Who, um, was kind of the lost great what if guy from the playground scene in the sixties and you always heard the stories, but then to actually make a movie about him is pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It was I think the greatest player that no one's ever heard of or something like that. that you've never heard of. Um, right. And one of the most amazing things about that was that, you know, Earl was there the whole time. So, you know, getting to really ask him about these stories and to, it was both intimidating and, you know, very, uh, it, it was very deep to have him around and watch and watch these stories and have him say, yeah, that's, that's, this is what I was going through. And it was exactly like this. And I did lose a couple years at one point where I didn't, he lost years of his life, wasn't aware that years had passed. Um, and then to really see the story that how he was able to turn that around with that, yeah. you know, that Rucker game and really inspire so many young people and bring so many young people up 
that was uh, it was great to see. And it was always great to see him interact with kids. He was just really a, had a big heart that ultimately was a heavy diet of congestive heart failure. Um, but just a very sweet man and just very giving and, and generous the whole time. And people don't realize you got cast because you have a 54-inch vertical leap. Yeah, it was, was 55. Now it's 54. I lost an inch. <laughs> You're like, I'll, do, I'll hit all the duck seats myself. So then it, then you end up in out of sight with Soderbergh and then it, then it's off. Then, then at that point you're getting, uh, you're, you're getting a lot of the roles. I'm sure you probably wanted. What did you learn from Soderbergh? No, I think it was, it's always been, you know, it's, it's, it, it looks like that, but it had always been a grind. It had always yeah? been. Oh yeah, for sure. And so, and I think that's probably my story is not, you know, dissimilar to a lot of people in my position. Um, a lot of young black actors at that time. It was never a layup. It was always, always a grind. I was very fortunate that I got to be in the, the films that I, I wanted to be in. And yeah. uh, to really craft, you know, and, and grow relationships within the business that would allow me to continue that. And I had good representation always. Um, but yeah, it was a, it, it, it was a grind. It was a grind. Um, and I met Steven at a table read for Out of Sight. Um, the casting director at that time, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go up on her name, but she, uh, just said, can you come to this table read? And it became kind of clear, like halfway through the table read that they're like, well, yeah, we want you to play the part. Uh, and that started this, you know, great relationship. Steven and I are supposed to do a new a movie now if this virus thing ever, you know, steps back. Uh, but I learned a lot from Steven. I've, I've been, and I think it's now the fifth time I've worked with him. Uh, and he's just another very clear, very focused, um, but not, you know, there's always a moment in a Steven Soderbergh movie that I've worked on that like week two or three where he goes, oh, I finally know what this movie's about. Like he's, it's, you know, he's like, oh, I've, I finally figured it out. You wouldn't know that, but yeah. he, you know, he's lets it come to him. You know, he's a director who you show up on the set for the scene and he's like, all right, show me. He's, he's not like, you stand here, you stand here, you go there. He's like, show me. And then he kind of figures it out with you. He operates. So he's very, he's right there with you. It's not like he's sitting behind a monitor and you're, you know, half an inch tall and he doesn't really see what's happening. He's right up close. So you know that he's, he's a part of the process in a way that's very intimate. That's a really special movie because it could come out right now and probably be the exact same movie. I think oh, there's certain 1990s movies that are just completely timeless, and that's one of them. That's one of them too, and and very underrated. And it's still like every year people pick up on it more and more and more. It's just a, oh yeah, still holds together. It's a really good movie. Well, I remember you also. You played Sammy. Yeah. With the Rat Pack, which I thought was one of the best TV movies. I love that because I'd always been fascinated by the uh, the Rat Pack. But did you dive into all the Sammy research? Because he's Oh, One of the secretly most fa most fascinating people ever. 100%. Had to do all of that. And that, and that was an interesting one, too, because in the movie, um, on the page, when I, when I got it, they had never really dealt with race for Sammy. They had never really dealt with, other than like the big sort of operatic scene that there was and the big idea about what he was facing in general with the world. They never dealt with what he was dealing with inside those own relationships with his friends. And I, and, and, you know, in Sammy's books, he never really talked about it in either of the autobiographies. He never really talked about it. And I was like, there's no way that this didn't ever come up. 
this has to be something that we we explore. Even if he doesn't talk about it, we have to take the poetic license and deal with this. And it was never in the script and it hadn't been in the script. So every time that it would come up, something they offered it to me and I said, have you guys, what have you guys done about that part of the script? And they're like, oh, we're gonna get to it. I'm like, well, when you get to it, send it to me and I'll see if I'm gonna take the part. And it was weeks and weeks that they hadn't really, uh, the writer, uh, Carrie of Salem, really good writer, they hadn't really come to it. And then Cario wrote this couple scenes that just hit, touched on it, but in a very impactful way. And then I kind of said, I want to have a moment when I'm performing where they can have the joke out front where he says, you know, I want to award the NAA, thank you for the NAACP for this thing. Or he says some racist thing to Sammy, some joke. And I said, I just want to be able to turn upstage and have the camera upstage and have, I don't have to say anything. I just want to show the reaction to that. And then I can turn back around and put the smile on and just be Sammy again. And those little moments, I think, really informed it. But once we finally agreed to do that, I had two weeks left to take to yeah. get ready, which meant it was just, I had to cram. So I had gun twirling lessons. I had drum lessons. I had trumpet lessons. And Savion Glover was the tap instructor, which was worth doing it alone. Just that alone was worth doing it. So I got to, you know, learn how to tap from Savion Glover, you know, greatest tap dancer a lot. Um, and it was just, uh, it, it was great. And, you know, getting to work with all those guys. Um, it's a really good one. It's one of the best TV movies ever, I think. You yeah. know, I think out of all the guys from that era, he's the one that would be the best Netflix or Hulu Mad Men style show if you built it around a real person. because he's straddling these two worlds, right? He's at least, he's, well, yeah, maybe more, um, where he's like the black face for white people, basically. They really, one of the only ones they have in their lives at that point. But then he has this whole different meaning to black people and he's doing all this under the radar stuff. Nobody knows about for the black community. So I, it's really like a guy who was living two lives at the same time. And I always felt like in a movie, like the one you made, it, it just like scratched the surface for a split second. There's so much more there. So much more. And and the talent off the charts, you know. Just oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Everything he did, he did at such a high level. It would be really hard to, it'd be, it'd be tricky casting as well. So it's a big, it's a big, it would be a big project. And there are people trying to develop that right now. And was missing an eye. And was missing an eye. How about that? And and was still like the, the, an amazing performer, but yeah, I've always been fascinated by him. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like crash takes too much shit at this point? How do you feel looking back at it now? Uh, the, I've, the way I felt with it about it before, you know, I was like, this isn't a perfect movie. I think it's got flaws. Um, but I can't think of any movies that don't. Um, but I appreciated what it was trying to take on. And I appreciated pushing that conversation out into the world um, in a way that I hadn't seen done on film. And it's an allegory, you know, this, the movies, it's not meant to be taken exactly literally. This, there's a lot of what ifs, there's a lot of sort of sliding doors in that movie. I think some of that is missed on people. Like they're like, you're telling me that this guy bumped into her at the same time and she bumped into him. I'm like, that's not exactly, I think the, the how we're supposed to be taking this film in. We're supposed to be talking about the, the intersections of these people's lives and how they might inform one another and, you know, a cross section of people. But 
Yeah, I think it takes it takes a lot of shit, and I don't. It's it's fine. I think once you put something out in the world, that's you. That's what you've done. It's that's what it's for now. People get to decide. They're the jury. They're going to determine its value and its worth and what it means to them. And everybody's right. You know, the people that think it's shit are right. The people that thinks think it's great, they're right. That's about how you connect to a piece of of film, to a piece of of art. That's 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 how you take it in. That's the problem with awards, right? Ultimately, we're judging how art affects each human being. And, you know, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes there's a performance that is so clearly the best performance you've seen all year or some movie that's so powerful. But a lot of times we're all, it's going to hit everybody differently. Absolutely. And I think it was maybe Malcolm McDonald who said, so the only way to figure out who's the best in each one of these things is to have everybody do the same role. You know, who was the best in this role? Who was the best in this movie? You know, but you were trying to, you can't, they're apples and oranges. You know, you can't compare half of these movies to each other. Titanic isn't trying to do the same thing that Crash is trying to do. We're not, you know, they're not even in the same worlds. True. So when putting those all up there and to compare them. And, and again, you know, these contests between artists, you know, it's just, we know what it is. It's not, it's, 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 it's about much more than just the award itself, obviously is, you know, commerce involved and there's other things that we're trying to, to other boxes we're trying to check off. Well, especially with the Oscars where it took people forever to realize that the people who were voting the Oscars was a specific demographic that maybe didn't represent everybody who should be voting for the Oscars. They've made good strides the last few years. I don't know when they'll get to the right place, but at least they've put some more thought into it the last few years. Yeah. I mean, that's it. And people don't understand how much of a campaign it is. You know, the general public isn't privy to how much work goes into people, you know, securing an Oscar nomination. Uh, There are Oscar consultants that just work during that period of time to figure out how you have, you know, best position yourself to get an Oscar Uh, and, and how it impacts a film and, you know, I remember sitting at a table with an exec who I won't name during uh, Hotel Rwanda during that run. And we were at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, I think. And they, you know, we didn't get any Screen Actors Guild Award. And he said, well, if we're not going to, if we don't get an Oscar nomination, I'm not, we're not putting any more money into the, you know, marketing for this movie. I was like, what? Were? <laughs> he was like, yeah, that'd be a waste of money. If, if we don't get any more noms, then there's no reason to to try to even keep it out there in the theater. I was like, this movie is important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's another reason to keep it in the theaters than just is it making dough, but there's, you're bumping up against the, the real world of finance and commerce. And this, you know, this, these movies are made to make money. And if they don't, then you know, they have to go to the wayside. So it's, again, it's, it's something that when you peel it back, why awards are tricky because it's not just about the best and i don't even think they say best anymore it's just like and the oscar goes to they they can't even use that nomenclature anymore which is i'm glad about because that's it's not authentic it's not real um last i would say six seven years you know huge topic of our black actors and actresses getting the same opportunities as everybody else which has really been a story the last 30 years of hollywood but i feel like the last seven or eight i remember i had michael b jordan on a podcast once and he said, I just want to get to get to the point where if there's a good part, they're not thinking like, oh, this is a part that should go to a black guy or, oh, this is a part for a white guy. That is just like, what's the part? Let's all see who the who the best person for the part is. When do 
do have we gotten better at this? Do you feel like we're headed in a better direction? Do you feel like you have more opportunities for parts that maybe you wouldn't have had 20 years ago? Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, in some aspects, I think it cuts both ways. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's cyclical. I don't think we ever are at a point where we're not taking steps forward and steps back at the same, at the same time. Uh, and as studios try to figure out, you know, how to do the most important thing for their, on their color chart, which is green, you know, how to, how to make money, you know, that's what's coming into consideration. You know, when all these black movies made money two or three years ago, everybody was going, well, I want, give me four of those, you know? And so it's, it's, it's kind of how it happens. And we had a moment, there was a moment in the eighties where it was that way. There's a moment in the nineties where it was that way. A lot of black movies in, around a certain theme were making boys in the hood, minister society. They were around a certain kind of a theme, but it was a moment again. And everybody, everybody in Hollywood's always trying to do something in the rearview mirror. They want to know what just worked. So, uh, yeah, the opportunities, there are more opportunities now. Um, I don't know that I ever want it necessarily to be at a place where the only consideration is, is this the right person for this role? I don't want to erase race. I don't want to erase gender. I don't want to erase sexual identity. I don't want to erase the things that I don't want to, I don't want to mute it down. I want to raise everything up so that those the differences about us are unique and are celebrated and are important and they impact the story. Um, you know, I don't want to just ever de take decolorize the things and go, well, we're all just the same, so we can all have the same story. It's like, no, that's not the truth. We're not truth. all the same. And that and and we shouldn't be striving to be all the same. That's not the goal. The goal is to be whoever you are, and we can all still share in this great expression. So I don't, I don't, I don't want that to ever become a non- issue because it's not ever a non-issue in real life so let's really show what's going on and be who we are and and use that in as storytellers to our advantage to tell more you know in-depth and interesting stories well and it would seem like investing in the infrastructure that would produce more of those storytellers well, that's would the be only the way, other way to really help that's the only way you get there i mean you you cannot and we haven't had that, you know, we haven't had an incubator for many years. We haven't had a, uh, that sort of a proving ground that allows people to matriculate through a system that puts you in a position where now you are a green light executive and you can make these decisions. And behind you is a junior executive that looks like you. And behind them is an assistant that's tracking to potentially become the person to take you over. So there's a real, you know, there's a real, um, sort of like a guard, uh, what would you call it in professional sports? You know, you would have your triple A league and your double A league. You would have uh, a place for where you go back and get these players. So that's something that really needs to be created and, and, and supported in our business, uh, soup to nuts. And then we will have all of these voices and you won't be talking about, well, why aren't I there? It's like, well, if you were there as the person in the mailroom who then got to be the assistant, who then got to be the junior executive, then got to be the executive and got to decide, and you've been through every aspect of this and come through this, that, that, that's it. There is a crucible of learning that has to happen, you know, and you have to be able to fail along the way and not have it be, uh, you know, critical and, and, and a death sentence and you're out of there. That's the only way that, you know, you continue to make the farm system work. So that's what we need. We need a better farm system, I think. I agree with you. And it's not just for Hollywood. I think it's for a lot of different industries. Investing in college and grad school 
is going to ultimately be the solution, but that's a 20 year plan, you know, and that, and that's a lot of thought and a lot of money being put in the ground level to try to fix stuff. That's right. And we, as human beings, uh, generally like to see results happen quickly. And if we don't see it happen fast, we're like, oh, I guess it's not working. It's like, no, you may not get to be, you may not get to see the end result of the work that you put in. It doesn't mean that the work isn't necessary. It just means that you have to, have to be patient and, and patient doesn't mean just sitting back, not doing anything. It means you just have to keep tilling the soil. You got to keep working the thing. Um, yeah. And understand that, you know, the benefit may be down the road. You may not have it. It may be down the road, but you still got to put in the work. So the movie you're most attached to, Hotel Rwanda, for all you put into it and for what it meant? Uh, there's, I mean, I, again, I, I am, I, I look at the, the movies that I've had an opportunity to be a part of and the films that I've been able to help put together from, you know, on the producer side of it, uh, things I've just been cast in, uh, movies that I've written things that I've been a part of in the, on that, in that way, it's hard to pick one, you know, yeah. they're all, not all of them. There's some that I have no attachment to, but there are others that you know, <laughs> really, you know, really stay with me and sit with me. And I have great friends from these experiences that I have, you know, it's still to this day. And, and we, we have, our families have grown together and, you know, we've traveled around the world together outside of, the movie. So I've been very blessed and very fortunate to, to, to have this career. Um, but Hotel Rwanda is absolutely one of the, one of the nearest and dearest uh, projects I've ever been involved in. And not only because of the film itself, but for what, you know, it fostered outside of, outside yeah. of what it sort of ramped up for me outside of the film and how it pulled me into this, you know, sea of activism that was already happening before I got there, but how I got sort of channeled into that was definitely as a result of the film. Let's take a break to talk about Norton 360 with LifeLock. With everything going on in the world, you may not have heard that there were over 460 million records exposed in data breaches this past May. Those breaches were only the publicly reported ones. The actual number, undoubtedly much higher, cyber attacks, ransomware, to the causes of many of these breach incidents. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals are always looking for ways to take that info. More threats than ever. That's why Norton LifeLock is giving you more protection than ever. Norton 360 with LifeLock provides all-in-one protection with device security, identity theft protection, a VPN for online privacy, and more. And if you have an identity theft problem, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Look, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But Norton 360 with LifeLock is a powerful ally for your cyber safety. Sign up today. Save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash Simmons. Again, 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at norton.com slash Simmons. Back to Don Cheadle. What made you gravitate toward doing TV shows? Because you've done two now. The latest being Black Monday. The material. You know, something that happened too around the period of time that a lot, you know, HBO, Showtime, all of these, these, um, these cable uh, entities happened. And then because how these streamers have just taken off, you know, there were things that you could do on TV that you couldn't do in movies anymore. Yeah. All about, you know, four quadrant, you know, flagship, huge cornerstone that had to, you know, communicate to the entire world. Superhero capes. 
all anything that didn't have to be processed through a very distinct lens that would require you to have to understand more than boom, shwee, you know, the, the big themes could get through, but stuff that, you know, anti-heroes, characters that were questionable, you know, things that were, weren't, were very gray and weren't just black and white. Those movies were harder and harder. Uh, they became harder and harder to get greenlit. Uh, so a lot of the artists, a lot of the writers, a lot of the directors, the creatives went to TV because that, was, that space was wide open at that time. And they were like, come here and do whatever you want. You know, you can be as edgy as you want. This is adult content. You can say whatever you want. And so artists started, and it was lucrative and people were making dough. So they're going, well, let me go over here and kind of say these things that I can say in this space that I can't say in, in a film. And, you know, they were very encapsulated. You could do it 12 weeks and you had eight months left of your life to, you know, do whatever. You can go do a movie and go do a piece of theater, whatever, just not do anything. But, you know, it was, it was, yeah, I was a very early adopter into that uh, idea, but it was because of the script. I read the script for House of Lies and I was like, this, this kills me. I'm laughing. I can't anticipate where it's going. I've never heard of this industry before. This is brand new to me. It's something that's fascinating to me. And it's, I've shoot 30 minutes from the house and I get to sleep in my own bed and I loved it. There was, there was no, it checked off every box. There was no reason to say no. And I'm platform, you know, we've always been platform agnostic about that. It doesn't matter where it is, if it's good work and it's, if it's good material, like, yeah, I want to do it. We talked to PTA about this. We were saying like, is Boogie Nights in 2000, we talked about it with him in 2000, I think beginning of 19. But if that script is in 2020, do they just turn it into a TV series? Is it a 10 episode I think so. Hulu show or something. I feel like it is, right? I think it is. I think it is. And you could spin off every character, right? <laughs> oh my God. Every character could get their own episode. Yeah. <laughs> and you could do origin, a whole like Better Call Sauce or the way they did with Breaking Bad. You could just go down any of their lives and do a whole side story about how they came into the industry, what happened to them after they left the industry, you know? All of these people, I want to see them older. Yeah. Because younger. I think Out of Sight also is one that easily could have just been a TV show. It yeah. at least could have been season one and then maybe season two, J-Lo goes and has some sort of different adventure. Maybe Clooney's not even in it, but you just, it could have kept going. Yeah, Snoop wouldn't have been. He, he wouldn't have been in it long. <laughs> yeah, he'd have, he have been like, I'm out. <laughs> yes, in the, in the season, but yeah. Yeah, There's it is. It's that. a really interesting time for Hollywood where you, where you have awesome IP like that and I'm not sure what the right place for it is anymore, whether it is a TV series. I think you just have much more latitude in TV. And I think that now it's not a, you know, we used to be like TV. I don't want to do TV. You know, nobody's on that anymore. Nobody's feeling like that. They're like, there's great work in TV. We know it. You know, we've seen it. There's amazing shows on. Um, and some of the best writing is there because it's still pretty much studios are making fewer and fewer movies. They're not making more and more movies. And the, the movies that they are, you know, opening up the pocketbook for and that they're bankrolling have to be these big tentpole movies. You know, they, they're trying to hit home runs with the six movies they're going to make a year at a time when they used to make 26. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very different world. And I don't see that changing anytime fast. Like if you don't have a strong streamer, if you don't have that kind of platform as a studio, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. Every studio has to have that. What's it like to be a respected working actor in the Zoom era? 
it's very busy. Um, you know, I just start, I, I have a production company that we started last year. And this is the one thing that everybody can do during COVID, right? Everyone can still develop. So we're still having tons of Zoom meetings and, you know, putting projects together and having meetings with writers and, and, and just, we're just very busy right now. And, and that's going to be a very interesting thing. Once everybody can go back to work, all of this work that's just sitting here, like everybody's at the starting blocks, like let's go. Everybody's right. work. Yeah, we have, it's been, now we're in the middle of month four, but you also had stuff that was being filmed that had to stop. Right. Stuff that was about to start filming that now can't film yet. That's right. And, only so many actors and crew members and all this stuff. So when we actually can get going, which hopefully will happen at some point over the next four to six months, there's I mean, just gonna be a lot going on. Is it? How can it? I don't. I don't. I don't know how it can. I don't. I don't. I mean, there are some people that have already gone back. There are some productions that have already gone back. Um, but that bubble concept is very. I don't know how it's actually going to work. I've seen plans on paper. And I, I I understand how the unions are attempting to uh, pitch the idea of the bubble and safety and these zones and people being able to move in safe ways around. But you know, you're unless testing is really robust, and unless you really have a contingency plan for if someone des- does test positive, what do you do if your lead actor tests positive? What do you do if a supporting actor tests positive? What do you do if the DP tests positive? What do you do if, you know, that's the other thing about a movie or any of these TV shows is that any link in the chain that breaks can be critical. You know, the costumer goes down. It's like that affects your show dramatically. The hair and makeup team can't be there. That's huge. You know, the boom operators aren't there. There's certain people you can slug into place, but not everybody. And it will affect the quality of, of the piece. And what is, you know, AIG just going to like underwrite the thing and pay for everything and go, okay, you guys can reboot and we'll just underwrite this thing for another 15 million. Go ahead, go again. No, I imagine they'll, they'll, there'll be a claim and they'll, it'll be force majeure and the movie will go down and they'll be like, well, we did that. I don't see how you keep going. I mean, I guess the NBA has a, an idea that they're just going to keep going if, you know, somebody tests positive and they're just going to slug another player in or they're just go light, but they're not going to stop is I think what they're planning. I don't, that, that's not the same in, in, a, in a movie or a TV show. You can't just pass the rock to anybody else in a TV show. It's a great point. I, I was going to add to that, that like in the NBA, they're almost treating it like a sprained ankle. Exactly. Where if like Anthony Davis gets it, he's just out for two weeks and he has to quarantine all that. But if you, if you got it on your TV show, there's no guy who can come in and play your part. It's not Broadway. No. Although they, they, uh, that would be an interesting thing to see. (laughs) Just, you know, a little bumper before the show starts. Uh, Don is down with COVID. So Jeffrey Wright will not be playing the part. Well, we wish Don all the best. They do that Scorsese face swap, like uh, whatever that digital stuff, just put somebody else's face on you. It doesn't cost anything. That's so cheap. <laughs> Every, everybody can afford to do that. Yeah. So you're pessimistic. I I'm deep down pessimistic, but trying to be optimistic. Is that pessimistic or is it just realistic? I mean, I don't. I think it's just real. I I, I think now actors will start having a lot of pressure put on them because you know I don't go back to work. Three hundred people 
people don't go back to work. It's not just me not going back to work. You know, I don't, I don't, the show doesn't start back up. Uh, so there will be a lot of pressure put on actors in my position to come back. But it, it, quite honestly, unless there is some plan that gives us a real, you know, sense of, of, of safety and security, is it, is it really worth it? You know, it's not, I don't know. We have these talks every day. We have these, you know, discussions every day. And, and, and what are you willing to take it on for? You know, we were all quarantined and then George Floyd happens and millions of people are in the streets and I was one of them. So it was important enough for me to be in that environment and to, to go out there and, 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 and protest. But does that translate? Is it important enough for you then to go back to work? And there was obviously, there were no, there was no zones and there was no protection. And there was no uh, idea that we would somehow be safe. We were outside. Uh, everybody in the one I was with was masked up. We had goggles on. There was no social distancing. So I, I guess you're picking the thing that it, that it matters for you to, to be a part in. Um, but that was, that, that was raised, that, the, the, the importance of that was raised to me much higher than creating a show again. Although I understand people going, I've got to go to work. I need to make money. I have to feed my family. I have to pay rent. Those are absolutely very real considerations as well. Yeah. I guess the, the only thing that sports has beyond everything that you just mentioned is there's a clock to it with the seasons and the history of it where you have like somebody, you know, like LeBron and his, you know, this might be his last great liquor season. It might yeah. be the last great season he ever has. And there's such a fear, I think, not just with the athletes and the teams and the commissioner and all that stuff, but even with the fans, like, well, fuck, we're just not going to have an NBA season. Like we, we have no winner. We need, we need finalization, but with TV and movies and even music, you know, you, that stuff can always, that stuff doesn't have the same kind of urgency. I don't feel like, you know, yeah, it, it, I agree. And it's, but it is somewhat bizarre, right? That totally it, you would we would be beholden to some sort of historical precedent about what we need to experience this, you know, cathartic. We need this cathartic win or loss so that we can validate what I mean, you know, so that we right. can. We're fans, and we're you know, I I understand that because some of that is also you know, kind of baked into our DNA of having these you know, communal experiences through, you know, these proxy battles. So we don't have to have these real battles and these, you know, proxy wars between these gladiators. I understand that. But we are also obviously not very uh, adept at looking at clearly what's happening in the world. It's like that all would make sense if there wasn't a pandemic, but there is. So it's like yeah. that. And it has to take precedent. And I know we're not used to it. And I know we've never been here before. We know none of us were alive. At, well, some of us were alive during the Spanish flu. But, you know, most of us were not alive during that period of time. But I wish people would look at the patterns because it's, it's, it's exactly the same. You know, people going, enough of this. And basically saying, we need freedom. We need our rights back and coming out. And then it was a huge second wave that took out more people than the first wave did. So we're kind of doing the exact same playbook uh, and even greater numbers of people on the planet because there's more of us now. So it's, I think 
and we're hard headed. So, you know, this is going to be a lesson that we're, that's going to need to be beaten into us. And it seems like we're on, on the path to having it beaten into us. Um, so it's, it is tricky. And yes, there's a ticking clock, not only on the audience's desire to have some sort of a win loss or, you know, a crown, a victor, but there's also a ticking clock on these players' bodies, you know? Totally. They're not all, like you said, LeBron is, I think he could play for a few more years and I think he does too. But yeah, he's older than he was last year. He'll be older next year. Uh, and there is a momentum, obviously, that happens in sports. And there's a groove that you find. And, and the Lakers were in their groove. They were flowing. So yes, there's a desire for them to finish the goal, for, to get to the, to the end and see what's going to happen. But there's still going to be an asterisk around it, no matter what happens. It's going to be a shortened season. It's going to be a season that you know, not all teams participated in. So it's, it's, and what's happening with baseball right now? It's like every sport is really dealing with it in a real way. Yeah. And I think, like you said, the athletes and their own mortality of their careers, I think is driving some of the decisions too. Whereas maybe actors, directors can afford to wait and and not have those same kind of stakes. But I'm with you. I, 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 I've changed my mind so many times on this thing. And I really thought the NBA bubble thing was going to work. And then the more you read about it and it's like, yeah, the workers can go in and out and, and it's like, well, wait a second, that's not a bubble. And you just, you start poking holes in it. Yeah. The, the only bubble is literally if you all stay in the same facility and play in the same, same facility and then go back to the same facility and there are guards all around. So nobody can leave. I mean, cause all it takes is one person to leave or one yeah. person in and now you've pierced the bubble and that a, that great experiment goes south and like i like i said as soon as what happens as soon as one person tests positive and we're not even and, and people can say anything they want to say on paper like yeah i'll keep playing but there's going to be some players that are going to be like yeah i know what i said but my wife called and she said get your ass home it's a wrap <laughs> you know you got kids and a family you can't this is a very serious illness this is not a joke People are going down and it's skewing now younger and younger. So it, 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 it's nothing to be trifled with. And you do have to ask yourself at the end of the day, what's, what's really important? You know, is it, isn't, it, isn't it more important that we try to be closer to Europe and be closer to these places that are seeing, a, a, seeing it turn around because they got super aggressive about it early? Again, that's what we're talking about. We want stuff now. And, and, and it's particularly an American thing. Like, I want my shit and I want it right now because, damn it, I'm free. I woke up free in this free country. And if I can get it, I want it. It's like, to the de- detriment of everybody? <laughs> you know? It's like, you, we have to be more responsible than that. Well, it's the narcissist culture, right? Well, we're number one in swag, right? It's like, hey man, I did this for three months. I'm only 26. I want to go out. I need to live my life. Like, All right. Well, yeah. the virus isn't gone yet. No, it's waiting for you. It'll it'll be at the club when you get there. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah. Um, last question. I'm not going to ask you who the best actor you ever worked with is. I'm going to ask you who was the most impressive actor. Who was the one that you crossed, male or female, that you were just like, man, I get it. I get it. I get why this person was so successful. Oh, they also have to be a successful actor? No, they don't have to be successful. Successful to you as an actor. Well, I mean, again, I, I think I've had a great... I've worked with very talented people. 
obviously. I know. That's why I ask. Very lucky. And it's hard to pick one. You know, Denzel is obviously a great actor and was great to work with and to, to, to watch close up. Um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, great actor. Um, Jeffrey Wright, really strong, really, really good actor. Uh, Julianne Moore, amazing, amazing actor. Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously. John C. Riley, another great actor. Yeah. Uh, all these all right. really, really, really strong and, and, and can do anything, you know, very facile, good at comedy, good at drama, can really, can really do it all. And, and I've, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a very lucky dude in that way. All right. I'm audibly in the question. I should have known you weren't going to totally answer it. Okay, go. You, you catch Denzel when he is Denzel. He is who he is. It wasn't like you, oh, this is the early, he's not quite Denzel yet. It's like, no, no, he's Denzel now. Yeah. And, and you're sharing scenes with him and scenery and hanging out with him between scenes and all that stuff. And this guy is an icon. What was that like? I was so, uh, I was so, I don't know if intimidated is the, is the right word, but I was definitely on my P's and Q's. I was definitely very serious during uh, the filming of Devil in a Blue Dress. I would always stay in character. I was always in costume. I, wouldn't, I wasn't hanging out on the set as, as Don Cheadle between takes, just hanging out. I do my scenes and I would usually go back to my trailer and, and, and breathe or I, I was super focused during that movie. And my whole sort of MO as playing his best friend was just to have his back. And I think if you watch the movie, even in the moments where it's like, I'm just there and not, there's nothing, I'm not doing anything. My whole MO, because I, 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 I forget these things, you know, this is a long time ago. I think I caught part of it on TV the other day. And I was watching one of the scenes and I was like, I was standing behind Denzel and he's in the scene and I'm looking around. I was like, what am I doing? I was like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm checking corners and I'm like, I'm just, I'm just watching his back. I was so 100 about the thing because it was Denzel Washington, because I was like, oh my God. I cannot mess this one up. You know, this one, I have to really bring everything. And uh, I'd worked with Carl before in student film that he had done at AFI. So that was really uh, helpful. And he was great, great director and not was, is a great director and was really and directed me very specifically and, and very well. So that was a, that was an amazing experience. Um, but yeah, definitely that, that, that's one of them. That's one of the jewels. That's one of the, that's a, I'm very proud of that movie. I did a podcast with him once where I went to see him in a hotel room and it's one of the pods I'm proud of. Cause he's intimidating. He just yeah. is. He's actually like almost too famous. Yeah. And yeah. you're talking to him. And I felt the same way when I interviewed Larry Bird too, where it's just like, you're, right. you're actually too famous. I don't know. It just feels weird to be in the room with you, you know? Yeah. And, when I did, uh, when I did countdown with magic and it felt that way for a little while, especially cause he's gigantic, he's six, yeah. nine. Yeah. And then after a while, it's just like, Oh, it's magic. You think he, you know, he, he became normalized after a while, but Denzel and Larry bird, it was not normal. I never felt normal for a minute. No magic is very disarming. Magic. Yes. You just feel like I can be this dude's friend. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, you can't. It's magic. <laughs> it's magic. Johnson. <laughs> 
obvious friend, but he's a very, yeah, he's very approachable. They're, they're different dudes. But, yeah. you know, Denzel, when we did Flight, uh, we hadn't seen each other in a long time, hadn't talked to each other in a long time. And we were getting ready to do a scene and we just started reminiscing, telling old stories. And, and uh, it was another actor on set that he had worked with. And the three of us were just kind of hanging out. And at one point we looked up, we're like, are we going to shoot? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, my agent was visiting and I said, what, why were we not shooting? We were, I thought we were just ready to shoot. It said the people were just loved that you guys were having a personal moment and having a conversation and they just didn't want to break up. You guys were having a great time. They just wanted to let it go as long as it was going to go. So yeah. So, yeah. You also don't interrupt Denzel. Yeah. He's a large, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably true. That was a good movie. I actually, that was one of my favorite Denzel performances. Cause yeah, he, he was, he was kind of like, losing control of the steering wheel Denzel, which I always like when he goes in that direction. But anyway, it was, uh, it was fun to finally talk to you. I really admired your career and a lot of the stuff you've done and it's been really fun to watch it grow and all the good things that have happened. Tell, tell the audience about, um, Black Monday really quickly. Oh yeah. Black Monday. I think we're back on the 28th. Um, uh, we, we did go down in post-production, uh, because of COVID but we were able to get all of our post-production stuff done and got all our effects in and music and color colorization and everything's happening. So the, it, and, and we're coming back on a strong episode too. So it's really funny and really over the top. And just, I think what the doctor ordered for this uh, quarantine experience we're having right now. So your sweet spot is a drama that's actually secretly seriously funny. Or, or something that's seriously funny that then has some real deep, downbeat that's mad. <laughs> <laughs> all right got it <laughs> uh don Cheeto, thank you this is great appreciate you man all right we're gonna bring in rob Lowe in one second first as the original light beer miller light has always been there to bring people together in real life through miller time and look getting together with a few friends in real life maybe it's not the option it was a few months ago some people are still doing it it can be enjoyed with your people you just got to get creative sometimes um you might be in a lockdown you might be in a state where you can go to outdoor bars, whatever. Um, stay connected to the people closest to you in some way. Maybe it's a Zoom drink. Uh, maybe it's uh, going to, hanging in an outdoor in somebody's backyard. Bring Miller Lite with you. It's the original light beer that tastes great. It's less filling. It won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people as you're having Miller time. As you know, it's always been my favorite. Miller Lite, the original light beer. It's been with me for ever since I was allowed to start drinking. While you're home, enjoy a classic available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories, 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. And since we're here, Simply Safe, hey, here's a question. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? When it's so complicated, you can never use it. That's a good sign, actually, that it's a bad security system. That's what Simply Safe has been fighting against. They believe Simple is safer, hence the name. It's why it's the home security for right now. It's designed to be easy to use when you're protecting your home 24-7. Order online with the click of a button, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in. Your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. And you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. 24-7 professional monitoring, emergency dispatch. All of it starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal. Considering Simply Safe was named best overall home security of 2020 by US News and World Report. Uh, I've been using it for years. It's an original sponsor of this podcast. I'm a huge fan. Head to simplysafe.com slash BS 
and get a free HD camera for my listeners. Once again, Simply Safe with two eyes, simplysafe.com slash BS to make sure they know that our show sent you. Without further ado, a podcast that's been in the making for like five years. Rob Lowe. All right. The old saying, everybody has a podcast now. Rob Lowe, trying to prove that that's true. You're finally <laughs> here. You finally have your own podcast. You made, <laughs> made it. it. You made it with all the other podcasters. Yeah. I, I, I based my career on going backwards. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started out as a movie star and then I went to television and then I just, then I became an author and then I went out on the road with my comedy act and then I went and now I have a podcast. So I believe in going backwards in my, it works for me. That's just, that's all I'm saying. What's going to be the angle for the podcast, which dropped this week. Yeah. My first, my first episode is out. It's, uh, it's Chris Pratt is my guest. And it's the reason I wanted to get into it in all seriousness was that I've enjoyed being on other people's podcasts so much because you can, you know, this is the last place where you can have a true conversation, um, freewheeling and there's no structure. And I always loved that when I was a kid on watching that on, on television interviews, but that that's not the, the genre anymore. And the diversity of people that I know in terms of having been in the business for so long and the stories, it's like, no one's going to talk to Gwyneth Paltrow the way I yeah. am. She, she crashed in my wife and I's guest bedroom when she was 18, trying to get an agent. Yeah. You know, no one's going to talk to Pratt the way I, I do. when I was like, bro, you got to slim down. And you're going to be a big movie star. So, um, you know, I just did magic Johnson for week number two. and when he and I got into our deep dive on the Showtime era, it was, I mean, no one, no, you know, no one has that perspective um, just because I, because I lived it with him. So it's been really fun, by the way. I got a blast. Good. I'm glad you're doing it. Um, yeah. You were, so you've been one of the hardest people to book for this podcast, <laughs> dating back to Grantland. And, so and crazy. Uh, I, there's so much to talk to you about. I don't even know where to start because I grew up. I grew up with your movies. Yeah, you're a little older than I am, but like, like you know, you come in in the early '80s. That's right when I'm an only child watching everything. Oh um, boy! I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, but can we deep dive the '80s? Can we just yeah, do it? Yeah, we do it, dude. That's listen, great. This is why I love being on podcasts because there's no rules. Great. Uh, and you covered some of this in your book, but one of the things I love about um, your whole arc especially those first few years is you're in this generation and it's all these dudes. It's Sean Penn and Tom Cruise and you, a, a few of you end up together in the outsiders, but you all know each other. And that that's the part like, and you covered this in your book and some of it's been covered in different magazine features, but it's a real class when you, it's almost like if you're using sports terms where like with the NBA, You'd be like, oh, the the mid eighties, like Jordan and Barkley and all these guys, and they all came in together. Your thing for whatever reason was a class. What was it just sheer coincidence or was there more going on than that? That this many actors all knew each other when before they became famous? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think it, it to me it's a little bit about like what happens in the music business, where you go, wow, wait a minute, in Laurel Canyon. The birds were living next door to the monkeys. Yeah. And Neil Young was in the basement above Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry was like the pizza delivery man or whatever. Like that's what it was. Um, I think in the sort of 
80s, you know, Santa Monica, Malibu um, era. So we did we did all know each other and we're all fighting for the same roles and being competitive and then helping each other with auditions. And um, I don't think that goes on so much any, anymore. I really don't. So you have... It's you, it's Sean Penn, it's Emilio Estevez. Or Sean Penn, maybe, a is he a tiny bit older or is he considered yeah, part of that crew? He's a little bit older, but yeah, no, he, he lived, you know, three streets down. So it's the, Chris Penn, Sean Penn, Emilio, Charlie, Robert Downey Jr. Um, Cruz moves, moves to California and now all of a sudden he's in the outsider. So he's in that mix. Yeah, Cruz moves uh, out to Malibu because he had just done taps uh, with Sean and Tim and, and Tim Hutton, who has to be included in this too. Cause he Tim, got ordinary people. Yeah. Tim's living in the colony, getting all the girls, <laughs> getting all the roles. Wait. All right. Life, so let, uh, let's, let's hell. hit that. So Tim, so Tim Hutton gets ordinary people, wins the Oscar and moves right to Malibu colony. Yeah. Playing, playing, pick up basketball out there in the street. I remember it like it was yesterday. And where are you living at the time? You haven't, you haven't had your break yet. I'm living at home. I'm living in my parents' garage. I've converted the garage into, you know, a, a 19 year old's paradise. Big color TV, a little bit of privacy, some set of weights, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an amazing time to be in California, too, because they're filming all the stuff there. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I moved to California, I was, I was 13 and uh, we would go out on the, you know, the school playground and there'd be a dog fight of Navy World War II Corsairs dive bombing over the school and they'd be filming that TV show, Baba Black Sheep. Oh yeah. Or you Bob go Conrad. To, Bob Conrad, knock this off my shoulder. Yeah. Um, or you'd go down to the beach and they'd be filming Charlie's Angels and there'd be Farrah Fawcett in that amazing bikini. I mean, I, it was really, really a, a magical. Oh, oh, I remember driving through Malibu one day and, and, and seeing a movie company at the end of the Malibu pier. And, you know, I was young and wanted to be an actor and I didn't know anything about it. I was from Ohio. So I wanted to go and see what they were shooting. And it was the incredible Hulk. And, wow. uh, it was, it was just so fun to see all that stuff. I was an only child growing up just outside of Boston. All of these shows yep. were in California, including battle of the network stars, which was filmed at Pepperdine, which seemed like, I, I didn't even know how is this in the United States? They would do the wide shot. Cosell would do right outside Malibu. Like, and it would be like, wow, that's in the United States. Where is this? The Battle of the Network Stars was a highlight of my life. Oh, yeah. A, a I loved watching it on TV. And, and I think it started the year or two before I moved to California. So when 76. I got to. Yes, perfect. So when I got there, I'd seen it on TV. And now I'm there. And I'm watching. You know, Christy McNichol from Family, who was always the MVP, <laughs> right? She was yeah. like, they would turn her loose on the obstacle course. But Mark Harmon out of UCLA, the former quarterback, Mark Harmon, and you know, Farah uh, was there, Lee Majors, and they took it really seriously. That's what I loved about it. Like they were not fucking around at all, and it always came down to the tug of war. Remember that? Oh yeah. I, it was my favorite show. And one of the greatest sports moments of my childhood was when Gabe Kaplan beat Robert Conrad in the race. And I, remember. I just had this hazy memory of it, but really distinct, but you know, it was, and then YouTube came around 
And I'm like, oh, at some point this is going to come on YouTube. And then it finally did. And it was better than I remembered. I wrote a whole column about it for ESPN.com. It was like one of the great underdog wins of my life. Cause it just seemed like no. Conrad was going to smoke him, but you forget he's smoking like seven packs of Marlboro Reds at the time. So and Gabe, Gabe Kaplan's Kaplan got that, does yeah, that big gate. He's got those long yeah. legs. He just, he just murdered him. Yeah. So, I, so I, I it really re- did matter it. back then. It was good. Sh- it was really good stuff. I mean, I have a, there's an online photo floating around of me in bright red dolphin shorts with no shirt. And I was like like 15 and I was so thin. I literally look like I've I've been on the Bataan death march with my dolphin shorts at the Battle of the Network Stars watching it. It's it's a humiliating photo. I highly recommend everybody Google it right now. Um, It's humiliating. But that's me at the Battle of the Network Stars. And it was I thought I was looking so fly. God, did you were you on a TV show at any point there? Did you go right to movies? I did a TV show almost immediately after that moment in, in my life. Well, I, when I was 15, I got a sitcom on ABC called A New Kind of Family. And it was two women and their family sharing the same house, which then became a big hit. And later on, on a show called Kate and Alley. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, that was, by, and apparently it was like some associate producer on our show stole the idea and made it a hit because ours was a bomb. Ours was a bomb and noteworthy. Only in that, um, I remember that there were 62 shows on all of television because we were always number 62. We were dead last because we were opposite 60 Minutes, which is the number one show at the time. Disaster. And um, in one of the great moments, the, the other, it was a disaster. The ratings were terrible. Nobody knew what to do. They shut us down for a week. And when we came back, the other family had been fired with no explanation whatsoever and replaced um with Toma Hopkins and Janet Jackson. And so I got Jesus. to know I got to know Janet when she was a 13-year-old actress and I remember her going, "Man, this acting thing is not for me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of gravitate to the music. Yeah. So then the The Outsiders happens, which was a legendary book when I was growing up and when you were growing up too. Still Cop- is uh, one of the, one of the things I love is that Every year, there's a new um, crop of seventh grade um, folks who have to read the book because it's in the curriculum across the United States, and they get introduced to that sh- that movie, and they fall in love with the 18 year old versions of Tom Cruise and me and Matt Dillon, and and uh, it's fun to walk down the street and have you know still have like a, a 14 year old go, oh my god, soda pop, Curtis. Seriously. Well, it was, it was that it was Tex and it was Rumblefish. That was S.E. Hinton. Those were the three books. Very, very. You read all of them. There's one more. There's one more you're missing. Which one? That was then. This is now. Oh, that was a great one. Yeah. Right. So for whatever reason, the outsiders, I I mean, they made three movies out of those four. I don't think they made that was then. This is now as a movie. If they, if they They, did, I don't remember it. They did. They did make it. It was um, directed by, I think the same guy who directed Tex, but notably it was the first thing that Emilio Estevez ever wrote. He adapted it and wrote it. There you go. Well, the outsiders legendary. That was the best of all the books. Coppola is involved. He has the most juice he's ever going to have. He's coming off apocalypse. Now two godfathers. And it's really funny reading 
there's that there's been a couple great magazine pieces about it over the years about how he really was like, I want to find the next generation of people. And he goes out and the cast ends up having you and Swayze and Emilio Estevez, Tom Cruise, Diane Lane, all these people. But this must have been in your circles, like the all time dream. I have to get this role. Everybody you knew was trying to go for it, right? There's never been a movie like it, certainly in my experience, in terms of so plum and with with a director behind it, like you allude to, at that moment in time, there was nobody who even could compare to Francis Coppola. Nobody. Yeah. And um, all the parts were great. You know, you didn't even know what part you wanted. They were all so great. And Francis didn't know what part he wanted you for because you would. One day I'd read Pony Boy and I'd come back and audition and then I'd read Dallas and then I'd read Soda Pop Curtis and um, the, the, the sort of kill or be killed casting sessions that we used to have where we had to watch each other do it. Um, that none, none, of, none of that has ever happened since. Um, it, was, it was an amazing, amazing time. I left out Macho and C. Thomas Howell too. Oh, yeah. I mean, he really did he really did kind of achieve what he wanted to achieve at the time. Like I want this movie to be remembered as this movie that launched all of these careers. And it was like, well, that kind of happened. And it's not the first time he'd done it. Um, yeah. Godfather. He, you know, you look at the Godfather cast, um, you look at the cast of apocalypse. Now you look, uh, you know, the other thing is Francis had a producing partner named Fred Roos. who did all of Francis's movies and Fred really was responsible for the casting. Truly. He was. Yeah, And Fred also did all of those movies I just mentioned, but he also did American Graffiti. So if you add the American Graffiti cast yeah. to this litany of people, it's really, really extraordinary. Did, did you know your life was going to change? Yeah. Everybody, everybody who was in that movie knew. We, um, the, 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 the movie was just too high profile not to change our lives. You know, I'd never done a movie. So to star in a Coppola movie, I mean, by definition, your life's changed immediately. I think what, what's funny looking back on it for me, though, is that we all thought the movie would do better than it did. It did fine. It did fine. It was a success, but it was not a monster. Yeah. It wasn't. And I think we would have thought the movie would do better and maybe we wouldn't. And it turns out that as actors, we all did way better for way longer than the movie ever did. And that I don't think we saw coming. That was a weird time for movies because there was a lot of movies based around teenagers and young adults. And it, and it just, yeah. And, and I even look at 83, 84, 85, it's just a slew. That's when a lot of the great high school movies, John Hughes, um, yeah. Karate Kid, all those type of movies on and on and on. And it just seemed like people went from that movie to the next one, all the right moves. Cruz was in all the right moves. I think the same year. And there was just dozens of them. And, uh, I'm with you. I, when it was coming out, it felt like it was going to be the biggest movie in the world. Um, was there a moment like a before and after moment before the movie came out and after where you're like, you're still a normal person. Nobody knows who the fuck you are. And then the movie comes out and you're like, Oh my God, this is now different. It's well, it started before the movie came out. I remember vividly showing, listen, I, I, in high school, I was, look, I don't, I don't want to pretend that I didn't have girlfriends. I did, but I wasn't the cool guy. Yeah. Um, the hot girls had no interest in me at all. 
Uh, they wanted the football players, the beach volleyball players. This is Santa Monica High School. Um, and acting in those days still was kind of like what theater nerds did. And I'm, I'm using the, the euphemism they used to describe me was worse than theater nerd. Yeah. You can imagine what that would be. Um, so I didn't have any real game at all. And I remember showing up to Tulsa to the uh, location. First time away from my parents. I'm 17. I'm going to turn 18 on the movie, but I'm 17. And the word had got, Matt had already, Dylan had already shot Tex there. And Matt was always, he was sort of a star already. Teen idol yeah. star. My bodyguard. So, yeah, my bodyguard. And so, the you know, he'd been there for a, a month and like the girls knew and it had become kind of a thing. And I, I'll never forget walking into the lobby of the hotel fresh off of, you know, Santa Monica High School theater nerd life. And they had police barricades to keep the screaming girls away. And I remember Matt walking down the barricade and looking at one girl and pointing at her. And she ducked under the barricade and left her friends immediately and walked up the elevator with Matt and turned, and I'll never forget the look she turned around and gave her friends. I, I remember like it was yesterday. And the look was like, oh my fucking God, can you believe this? And, I, and like it was yesterday, I went, I, the light bulb went on in my head. I went, oh, so this is what it's like. And that was what it was like. That's been what it's like for Matt Dillon for probably four decades. So he's, he's, he's like, he's the he's legendary the goat. bachelor. Yeah. Um, so then you go, you make class, which yep. you're not going to believe this. I watched six days ago with my 12 and a half year old son and my 15 year old daughter. I fast forwarded. I knew what part to fast forward. The premise of that movie, my kids didn't know it was going to happen for the people listening. The premise is you're rooming with Andrew McCarthy at a boarding school. He goes into Chicago one weekend, has an affair with Jacqueline Bissett, who's your mom. And then everybody kind of finds out an hour in. And as it happened, my daughter, when it's revealed, my daughter was like, wait a second, this, can this happen? How old is it? And she's asking all these questions. It's kind of amazing. The movie got made. I was like, no, no, I think he was 18. Um, they made it. They, it's the ultimate MILF movie before the phrase MILF totally. was invented. Totally. She was, I mean, Jacqueline Bissett, I mean, she well, was all-time legend. All-time legend. They wanted me to play the Andrew McCarthy part originally. And I thought, just for me, I thought that the Skip Burroughs part was just more fun. He was just a... Yeah belligerent badass jerk funny didn't give a shit um and so i ended up playing that part and uh jackie who was, was amazing we just used to laugh she was very uptight about having a son my age on right. on screen um and she was just so beautiful and one of the first like real true stars that i ever worked with you know and uh andrew and i were we did it in in chicago and we just had full run of that city. We had so much fun. Those movies were so fun to make. Oftentimes, the the, the making of the movies were were more fulfilling than the actual movies. Right. Well, and then you also John Cusack was in that movie, and Alan Ruck. There's yeah, so it's Cusack, like a lot of people. Yeah. So Cusack and Ruck were really interesting. There's always been a great history of great actors coming out of Chicago and people working in Chicago because so much stuff is shot there. And uh, Cusack 
had a part with, I think, two or three lines. That's it. He was always going to be like the third guy in the background of a bunch of scenes. He was so funny. His ad libs were so hilarious that they just kept giving him more and more and more and more and more stuff to do. But that part was never meant to be anything. He was just right. genius at it. And then the other thing people forget about a little piece of trivia is when in the scene where I walk in and find uh, Andrew in bed with my mom. Yeah. I'm with a date and the date I'm with has, is has one scene. And I remember, so she's a background artist. That's what they call them. They're the people who come in for one day and leave. And they brought a bunch of them out for me to pick which one I thought would my character would want to date. And I picked uh, uh, this beautiful actress, and that was Lolita Davidovich. Oh, my God. Star in Blaze and all of these movies. So if you watch that, that's Lolita Davidovich that I bring into that little sequence. And Virginia Madsen's in the movie, too. And she's another one. She was another one that, you know, we were all just starting off and uh, nobody would have known. It was a really fun era because they just started making boarding school movies for like four or five years. It was this this weird boarding school run. It was a fetish. Boarding boarding school sex fetish movies. I mean, I thought the whole thing about boarding school was there was no sex at boarding school. Right. Yeah. So it was that. It was that trend, but then there was also that trend of like horny teenagers trying to get laid. And it was like out of that Porky's era. Oh, and a, so lot, you have of, all a lot of movies, a lot of movies where, where, where girls were forced to ride horseback with no tops on. It was right. I've never was seen weird. anything like it. Yeah. Cause really Cruz, Cruz was in losing it where they go to Mexico to try to lose their virginity. But then honestly, you go back and there's like 10, 11 movies like that. So then, all right. So you go from there. Now you're a star hotel, New Hampshire which was talk about John a movie Irving. That would, you would never get made today. That movie would never get made. And it was, um, you know, when, when they were making that movie, Tim Hutton, my nemesis was the original, um, actor who was doing it with Elizabeth McGovern. It was their follow-up to ordinary people. Yeah. And then the movie fell apart. And when it was recast, I got the part. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was the, the first movie that I was ever a part of that had this, um, Liter- literary pet uh, pedigree to it that you know could have been like an oscar movie the level of seriousness it was not a teen movie it was an adult it was a john irving book it was a big deal and the movie is just so bizarre um and it, it came out the, the same day as a little movie called splash <laughs> and i'll let you do the math you can see a young tom hanks with Daryl Hannah as a mermaid in a comedy or see me and Jodie Foster in a movie about brother, sister incest with Nastasia Kinski in a bear suit. You tell me what you're going to go watch on a Friday night. Yeah, it was, it was a little too weird, but it was coming off world according to Garp, which I always, I really liked that movie. So, and Irving was a huge author at the time. And you think like, well, they pulled it off with Garp and that that movie was too weird. And it, but it's really funny as Irving for years would tell you, that um, his favorite adaptation of his books was Hotel New Hampshire. Really? Yeah. Um, I think Cider House Rules probably w- w- came later and was a better a better version. But but at that point, he 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 was he, he was not a, a giant Garp fan. Although that movie was way more successful than Hotel New Hampshire. I really like that I, movie. I will say, like looking back on that movie, um, I'm I'm I. 
I'm, I'm really proud of, of that movie, um, as weird as it is. Um, and just in terms of the performances, Jodie Foster is so good in it. And, and I, I thought that I got to do some, some, some kind of the type of work that, that young actors didn't get a chance to do at that era, really. Were you seeing two Oscars for her when you were working with her? Were you like someday two Oscars? It wouldn't, have it wouldn't have surprised me. What would surprise me is that she would stay in the business long enough to do it because Jody was so smart, still is, and has so many interests going on outside of acting and, and really sees acting with a gimlet-eyed view of what it really is and isn't. She's under no illusions. So uh, the notion that she would still be uh, entertained and engaged enough to still be doing it to get to Oscars would have been the rub. But um, the 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 level of talent. I mean, there's nobody like her. She, you know, she's my kind of actor where she, you know, suffers no fools, totally gets it, realizes she's not curing cancer, isn't navel gazing about quote unquote, her character. will talk to you about where you want to go to get dinner afterwards and they'll yell action. And then she will throw the living fuck down. Then they will cut and she'll go right back to her conversation. Um, your next four movies are very important to me. And everyone who grew up in the 80s. It's a murderer's row. First, we're starting with Oxford Blues. Oh, boy. A movie that's never on anymore. Is really good. Has good music. It's in London. You're, you're a badass rower. It's basically a Tom Cruise part. It's, yeah. it's the upstart badass. He's, yeah. he's his own worst enemy. He's so cocky. He believes in himself. Uh, everybody else instantly <laughs> rebels against him. It's yeah, just yeah. the whole recipe. It's good. It still kind of holds up. I, it might be the best rowing movie. I don't know. Some people say Chariots of Fire. Sure, it won I, a couple Oscars. I don't know. I think it's a toss-up. Listen, any any movie that can make sculling slash rowing sexy and fun deserves an Oscar, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree. And, it's very uh, enjoyable. I had the, I had the um, back in those days, the studios, today all the studios are kind of the same. But in those days, there was a hierarchy of studios like Warner Brothers. If you if you were doing a movie for Warner Brothers, it was likely to be a hit. Um, Hollywood Pictures and Disney came out and they just crushed it. And I had the mis like the misfortune of always working for God bless MGM. Yeah. Who could not release a movie if their life depended on it, usually because by the time the movie came out, the studio had been sold five times. So Oxford Blues. Later on, a movie called Masquerade, both movies that are really good. You can't find them anywhere because they're probably in bankruptcy court somewhere as collateral. Masquerade, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall, Meg Tilly, right off of The Big Chill. That was later. That was late 80s. We, we're skipping ahead, yes. but that is know, a good one. And you're right. It's never on. Never, because it's MGM. It's frustrating. Uh, yep. You would think in the streaming era, when everybody's trying to build libraries they would try to kick ass with some of these lost classics. Um, which brings me to our next one in this amazing uh, quadrilogy. Quadru quadrilogy? Quadrants of movies? Quadrilogy? Quadrilogy. Like, yeah. yeah. 30, 35th anniversary this month. Say No Most Fire. Oh, boy. 35 years ago, this week. And with the passing of the great Joel Schumacher, our director. Two there days you go. Ago. Um, Joel was an amazing man, an amazing director, and really, really, you know, look, Coppola gave me a huge break. But Joel Schumacher, 
gave me the most iconic part I played in the eighties. And for sure that's Billy and St. Elmo's Fire. And, you know, they wanted me to play. So that script was around. It was, it wasn't the outsiders, but it was close in that the script was out there and every young actor wanted to be in it. It had this kind of buzz and everybody was auditioning and trying to do it, but I'd already done movies and, you know, I wasn't auditioning and didn't have to do any of that stuff. And, um, all the, but everybody else in the movie was auditioning and doing it and getting the movie. And because they, you know, it wasn't being like offered to me like the other ones were, I didn't even know about it. Mm. And, but I'd heard about it. And then finally somebody was like, you should read this. And I read it and I was like, oh, this part of Billy's really good. And my agent's like, well, I'll talk to the studio. And they talked to the studio and the studio wanted me to play the Judd Nelson part and did not want me to play Billy. In spite of the fact that I was at that moment kind of an it guy, they were like not having it. They were like, not interested. Rob Lowe, Billy Hicks, no. And so I had to go to Joel Schumacher and convince him that I could be a bad boy. So I got fucked up on beer. I brought a six pack into the meeting. And uh, by the time the meeting was over, I had the part. And um, it was one of my favorite movies I've ever done. You know, I remember when the trailer was coming out for it, it had that great music that they would eventually use for uh, NBA finals and stuff like that. They'd use like Lakers Celtics and you would hear Brent Musburger being like, yep, the Lakers right. thought after game three that, and you would just hear the St. Elmo's fire music. It had, you know, the Washington DC mid eighties, Georgetown, yep. little, the, the little foliage in October. And it was mm. just, and it was all these actors that at that point we knew all of them except for Mary Winningham, but the other six and a lot of them had been in movies together and different movies. And it was a movie that just made sense. And it, and also like, you know, people read out of college. I hadn't really seen that movie for a few years. You know, it was a movie that for some reason people weren't making what happens after you graduate. What do you do? Yeah, it was it truly looking back on it now, it seems obvious, but it wasn't at the time. Nobody had done that movie. It's like the, you know, you've, you've had this great moment in your life and now you're like, okay, now what the fuck? And are we still friends and will we be friends? And, and, and what were our friendships predicated on? And, and look, St. Elmo's Fire has always had a little bit of a, um, like people make fun of it. There's a little bit of a hate watching thing because it's so eighties and it's a lot of it's really, really dated and, and, and that's all true, but underneath it, it's really about stuff that um, has, has stood the test of time in spite of the fact that me and hair moose might not have stood the test of time. Your hair, the, you have an incredible trumpet scene in there, or sa oh, I'm sorry, sax scene. Sax. I mean, what, <laughs> the, you, you gotta love it. Like, that's how you know it's 80s, is there's a saxophone solo scene. There's a band built around the saxophone player. It's like- it's a. Just wait till you hear his solos. You guys are going to go nuts. <laughs> this guy's a star in waiting. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it was, God, I was trying to do my, my version of Clarence Clemens from the E Street Band. I was like, I, I ripped off every one of his moves, even how he, he strapped the, the horn around his back like a guitar strap instead of putting right. it in front of him. And I just completely ripped that from the big man. Well, the things I loved about that movie that just weren't, and it's a little like the big show was like this too, which I think is a movie that's now thought of all these years later, probably a little more respectfully, but big show, same thing. Like, Hey, we, we, we all meant really something important to each other for these four years. 
And now it's 10, 15 years later. And it's like, I barely know you guys anymore, but I still have this connection. And it was the same thing with sitting almost fire where it's like, yeah, we were in college, but now we're all going different ways. We still have this connection. We still have this bond. Well, and that's funny because when people ask me about the Brat Pack or the cast of the outsiders, that's the answer. I would say, if you went to college with someone, if you, if you were in a sorority or a fraternity and you did all those things and, and went through all of that stuff, the, the, the Brat Pack and those people and from those movies, they're my fraternity. Right. My fr- when I see, when I run into Tom Cruise, he's my fraternity brother. It's what it is. It's like, I don't really know what he's doing now, particularly. And he doesn't maybe know what I'm doing. It doesn't make one fucking bit of difference where we're, we were in the same frat. Well, that was the year the Brat, the New York Magazine wrote the Brat Pack piece, mm-hmm. right? That's right. And that that's was on the, the cover. That's, coin- that's it. Yep. And it seems like some people have complicated feelings about that. I always liked the Brat Pack, but I, I know there was a stigma to it that I don't know. Do you think ultimately it was it a good thing, a bad thing, or both? Ultimately, it was a good thing, 100%. I think that it didn't engender us to any positive criticisms. I don't think that movie would have ever, or that that genre would have ever been a critic's darling type of thing to begin with. But that, but that piece killed us with polite society in the media. Mm. And, and there were, um, there were certain members of the, of the Brat Pack who were way, 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 way more sensitive to that, to that kind of stuff. And so it really was, a, they, they didn't love it and hate it. In fact, hated it. There's a couple of folks who won't even participate to this day in conversations about 30 year anniversaries of any of it. And, um, I, I take a different view. Um, I, I didn't love it when it came out because, you know, it made us kind of look like unserious party animal, uh, guys, which we certainly had that side, but we were, no one was more serious about their acting and their careers than we were. Yeah. But, um, looking back on it now, I, I, well, even then, the, like you, you were an audience member. You didn't, you never got the dog whistle underneath it that you're supposed to not like these people. You're like, whoa, Brad Pack, cool. And I think that's what most people felt. They're like, they didn't, they didn't realize that it was a, a winking kind of pejorative that the fancy New York you know, beret wearing critic bestowed upon us. I think regular people just thought fucking cool. I wish I was in the Brat Pack. That's how I felt as a teenager. To me, it just seemed like jealousy if people were picking apart. Cause I was just like, I like all the movies these people are making. So I don't know. I don't know why we're bitching about them. What, uh, what from a party standpoint, so you're coming into real prominence here. And this is the height of the cocaine era, the party era, the whole thing. It's in LA. Oh, yeah, I mean, nobody knows. Nobody knows cocaine is really bad yet. Although we have an idea, Belushi dies in '82. Thank you. This is what I. This is what I keep telling everybody is like, it's hard to imagine today, but there was a moment in time where not only was cocaine not bad for you, that, like it helped your thinking. Right. It was good for you. It was good for concentration in your brain, and wasn't addicting. I mean, it's not heroin for God's sakes. And it was what successful people did. Yeah. That it was honestly like today's wine. Look, I've been sober now 30 years. So I, and I was never a wine guy, so I don't really know. But what I observe today is 
this the sort of wine culture is what cocaine was. It's mm. like in, in that we're all very refined and very successful. We're going to talk about our cocaine now. And um, I assume, okay, it's from a dentist, actually. It's uh, it's pure Bolivian ship. Like, it's the same rigmarole you hear at a restaurant. I was like, oh, this is a, an oaky uh, Napa Valley. That's what it was. Nobody thought it was bad. We learned. Right. <laughs> we well, learned. I think, I think the Len Bias thing in sports was the turning point oh. for that. That was June 86. But I remember, I remember where I was. I was at the, walking up to the, <clears throat> to the lunch truck on a movie called uh, Square Dance. And, you know, no one was a bigger Laker super fan as me and Jack Nicholson. We were the two. Yeah. And, and I, and somebody told me that he had, he had passed away and I thought, Oh my God. And that, that was sort of the beginning of it. Yeah. And I think you look back now and you think I've talked about this before in the podcast, but movies, TV, music, sports, and comedy. So you take those five things and you think of cocaine from 77 to 86 and everybody, and if you're successful, it's, you're doing it the same way like we drink coffee now. You know, yep. and it's like, yeah, I'm a, I have coffee in the morning. It's it's not bad for me. It's fine. They, dude, they it's manageable. Sold it. They sold it on every movie set right. I was ever on, ever. You think about that today. Can you imagine you're working for Amblin Entertainment, you're on Jurassic World. Who's selling the blow? Oh, it's it's uh, a camera department's doing it. Oh, okay, great, thanks. Crazy. But also, well, you that, have to understand, like, I also, the people, things are so different. When we were doing Outsiders, Tommy Howell's, I think, 14. Yeah. And I was 17. And the legal drinking age in most states was 21. It might have been 18 in Tulsa. But either way, Tommy's 14. We would get in the van after work every day, and they would give us a case of beer. Just, Crazy. Just, just different, just different time. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to look back on it. Obviously, claim some victims. One other thing with Saint Almost Fire, you know, when you talk about the '80s, how it's it's honestly one of the most '80s movies. If you're just like, for sure, pick pick five movies from the '80s, and just and just use them as a way to explain the '80s to somebody who didn't get it. I would probably they would definitely be one of the five. There's like that crazy Emilio Estevez where he's basically stalks Andy McDowell's character the whole movie, follows her three hours to the ski lodge, and then it's like it's cool. Oh, all right, it's it. that would be. I think if somebody made that movie, that was a key point of the movie. Now people would be like, "What the hell is going on? This guy, well, they get, this guy needs they get to be, like he needs help." Yeah, they get a restraining order immediately after the first scene, and there'd be no story. Yeah, so it is definitely dated. Hey, let's take a break to talk about HBO Max. If you're doing more searching than streaming these days, well, HBO Max, a new streaming platform where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies and shows. Just recently, my wife and I have been plowing through Sex in the City, which you can find on HBO Max, along with every other great HBO show. You can find blockbuster movies, timeless classics like The Wizard of Oz or Casablanca, um, beloved TV shows, Friends, Big Bang Theory, awesome animation, superheroes, and supervillains from DC, family favorites, like Sesame Street, Looney Tunes, Scooby-Doo. You can even find a Rob Lowe movie that we talked about on this podcast, The Outsiders. If you just want to know what we're talking about, The Outsiders, just go to HBO Max. 
It's right there. They also have new Max Originals for everyone, all your favorites all in one place for just $14.99 per month. I think my favorite thing about HBO Max is how easy it is to actually look for stuff. One of my pet peeves with streaming services is when you're watching something and then you go back and it's hard to figure out how to go backwards or go back into the library or skip an episode. They figured all that out. It's a great app. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. Free trial for new customers only. Restrictions apply. And you can check out the outsiders. All right, back to Rob Lowe. All right, your next one. So you weren't done. Oxford Blues saying I was fire. You're ripping them off now. Then you then you decided to delve into the world of hockey. Mm. Young bud. Which mm. a very respected hockey movie in the hockey circles. Um, yeah. Did you know how to skate before the movie? I skated in the way that every Christmas you would go to the local tree cutting down place and right. put on the fi- put on the figure skates. Mm. And work and work your way around the rink. That was it. So I, the answer is no. Um, so I, I trained for that movie so hard. The 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 legacy of that movie for me is my love of training, mm. which incidentally I didn't love when I started. I hated it. I remember my body felt like I'd been run over by a truck. It was brutal. I would I would vomit a lot of times. Uh, skate to the boards and just hurl. Um, it was the first time I ever lifted weights first for all of that stuff I learned on young blood and I still do it to this day, but I, I trained for probably six to eight weeks. And by the time we shot, I was a really good skater, really, really good skater, still not very good stick handling. So whenever, if you, when you watch the movie, anytime there's a puck, it's not me, but the rest of the skating is, would, would all be me. And they would use some intentional slow-mo too to make it so, look good yeah yeah, yeah. so I mean, swayze is in that you're back with swayze and I'm then keanu keanu reeves is the goalie i thought he was an actual goalie <laughs> I, I i i didn't realize that that person who never said a word i thought he was french canadian i thought he was a goalie and it wasn't until many, many years later and many movies later that I realized that it was Keanu Reeves. I never knew, not one day, that that was Keanu Reeves in the movie when I was working with him. That is a respected hockey movie. And what's funny is um, it's basically a Tom Cruise template movie where yep. it's like young hotshot, thinks he's better than everybody, needs to come up and has a mentor. Uh-oh, guess what? Something horrible is going to happen to the mentor. Is this guy going to make it? Oh, he made it. Well, yeah, let's see if the young hotshot now can carry the load. Like Tom Cruise made that movie five times, but I feel like Youngblood came before all of them. Oh, no. Also, for, there's the Matthew Modine movie, Vision Quest. I mean, everybody oh, was doing Remember Vision Quest? He's like, he's oh, a wrestler, but I don't know fan. how good a wrestler he is. He's got to drop some weight to fight shoot. And he's going yeah. to he's got to wrestle his way to some sort of comeuppance. Um, and then Madonna's going to be in it, singing in the bar, because that's what happens when you're in Pennsylvania. And you're a hard Scrabble wrestler. Donna's in your bar. <laughs> she had to get her. Yeah, it was actually, it was worse than Pennsylvania. I think it was like Spokane, Washington. But she was yeah. passing through. She was on tour. Yeah, she's passing through. Singing, um, singing crazy for you. It's, you just cannot make this up. No, no. It was a good one. Uh, and then the last one about last night, which I think has held up. Yeah, I think too. if you're talking me about too. rom-com recipes. Yeah. 
It's one of the best ones. It's one of the best kind of capturing of how the arc of a relationship and how it can go up and down and how it can get screwed up. And it's very 80s. Um, the whole dynamic of this guy's got a buddy. She's got her buddy. The way they talk separately, they come together. Like It's all shit that's been ripped off now for 35 years. I don't really know what was a version of that before about last night. You, you no. might have actually been the first because then when Harry Met Sally comes two and a half years later, three years later, and I then always, everybody's like, oh, yeah, let's go. Let's do this thing. It's so funny. You met, it's, you're the only person who's ever mentioned it that, that way because I very quietly have always been like, you know what? Fuck when Harry Met Sally. I made that fucking movie. These guys just fucking ripped it off and made it probably better. I don't know. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I love about last night. It's funny. It's really well written. Um, there's just something really special about me to me and I together in that movie. I agree. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth Perkins is, she never worked before. Absolutely genius debut performance. And Belushi, um, Jim created the role on stage before he ever played it in the movie because it was a David Mamet play. Well, it was a famous play that, and it was a play that I remember when I was in college, I was taking a playwriting course. It was one of the ones they gave us like, read, read the dialogue in this. This is how you do it. And so I was good. like, wait, this is about last night. Um, yep. but yeah, all of it, uh, it's so funny how it basically created the template gets no kudos, none, no recognition, none, none, none of that zero. stuff. And the it's, whole it's, arc of know, we're in love up, oh, the guy screwed it up. Now he's in the dumps, sad music, him walking in the rain. That maybe the, he can win her back. How about the falling in love montage? Oh yeah. There's some mo good montages. They, and plus you're using Chicago too. Yeah. You got Bob Seger. One of my favorite lost Bob Seger songs living inside my, her heart or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the soundtrack to that. Um, the John Waite song at the end. This, I actually think the soundtrack to about last night is better than the soundtrack to St. Almost Fire. I think I Other agree than with you. the St. Elmo's Fire actual song, St. Elmo's Fire. I need to tape the edited TV version of it to watch with my daughter because I'm not watching the unedited version. Oh, there. bro, there's a couple. You, are not you went for it. You got you and Demi Moore went for it a couple times in that movie. Probably not. Uh, we, not that's the that other thing her. is is the in those days, everybody was nude. Everybody and 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 every single movie had to have what we blatantly just called without thinking there's anything wrong with it, a sex scene, every yeah. movie. Like when I would get scripts, I would always look on page 73, whatever reason they were always on page 73. And when you think about it as a writer, it makes perfect sense. Page 73 is sort of mid second act when traditionally it's the doldrums of storytelling. Yeah. So how do you, how do you solve that? I know we will get them naked. So uh, I, I would check the page 73 to see how bad or good, depending on your perspective, it was going to be. But about last night, I mean, we're, we're running like monkeys in that goddamn movie. I think that movie's really good. And people listening to this, I would urge you to go find it on whatever streaming service it landed on, because I, do, I really do think it holds up. And it really uses Chicago nicely, which is it the is, other it, thing. It's a good Chicago my, movie. It's my favorite. It's my favorite movie that I've ever done. Wow! It is. It's it one hundred percent. People, I love Saint Elmo's Fire. People like Saint Elmo's Fire. I like, you know, all of the stuff I started to do later. But, you know, 
of of the stuff I did early in my career, it's not even a close call for me that that would be the one I would have people see. What would be the silver medalist? Outsiders, just because it's you know it's it's Coppola and it was the first, and it it, it also still is a, a an evergreen. Can I ask what your life was like um, from a romantic standpoint as you're ripping off this run of movies and living in LA? Like, were, were you settled down with people? Were you jumping around? Were, like, how crazy did it get? It's everything you can imagine and more. Um, like, I was like the Shaquille O'Neal of actors. Like, you know, when you're with Shaq, you know you're going to have fun. Yeah. Like, that's that sort of was my my thing. Nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to make any false promises. It is what it is. You only live once. Let's go. And that's, that's the way I live my, I really did live my life in the eighties. And, and, um, you know, I, I, it was really fun. I gotta be honest. I had a blast. I, I'm glad that I grew up, that I got to the point in my life where I wanted more from life and where, where I put that in its proper perspective. And, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're young and famous and got money and you're, it's the eighties, you know, that's, that's no time to go to the monastery. Right. Matt Dillon's in there too. Oh, like I said, I learned everything I ever needed to learn from the goat. Wait. So when you saw like, so 10 years later, Leo's hits. Oh, it's funny. I think about that a lot. I think about, cause you know, he's, he's <laughs> on Mount Rush. He's on Mount Rushmore. Nobody Wait, was so- close to Leo. You're like Nobody. the old, but you're like on the NBA team. You're like the veteran at that point. You're, you're like Chris Bosh, 10 years in the league, watching the new rookie come in and going, Oh, look at this, this guy. Yeah, well, well, because and the other part of it is that we, when I was coming up, the guy, the ultimate guy that I admired was the goat of all goats. And that was Warren Beatty mm. who no, no one will ever have a run like he had. And that, and that was kind of baked into what you aspired to. It's like, I'm not sure that it was all that healthy to be out running around as much as, as I did, but that's what my hero did. And he was winning Oscars. So, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I want to be Warren Beatty. Right. And I think, and I think that all comes, there's still out there. And, and, you know, I, I got to say the, the, uh, the retired old Yoda in me, um, is very bemused to sit back, uh, sit back and watch young Mr. DiCaprio. I doff my hat. <laughs> when you aged out of like those kind of college, young adult type of movies, and I thought it was really interesting how you shifted and you started making movies like Masquerade, but then when you started doing the SNL stuff, yeah, that was when I felt like you recreated what I thought of you and what I thought your arc was going to be. Cause I think a lot of people who succeeded in the eighties, it kind of stayed in the eighties and it was hard to kind of evolve. And the, the shocking thing for me was the first time you hosted SNL and it was like, thank you. I'm so glad you watched that. That's cool. Oh my God. I, I was that. a huge SNL guy, but the whole episode where it was just like, wait, wait, Rob Lowe's funny. Where, when did this happen? I had no idea. And just being shocked by it. And then that led to you being in some of the Lauren Michaels movies and, all that stuff. But yeah, you must've been frustrated that people didn't see you that way. I, 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 there was a little bit of that. Cause I was, 
I was a Saturday Night Live fan from day one. Everything I ever learned about comedy, I learned from watching that show. Like I was obsessed with it like you were. And then I got to host it. And in one of the things that probably is the most fulfilling things in my career was that Lauren Michaels, you know, of all people, was like, you know what? You're funny. You're a funny fucker. And I felt like I'd been knighted by the Queen of England, the King of England. And, um, and it was so fulfilling for me. And that led, as you, as you say, it led to, you know, the Austin Powers, the Wayne's Worlds, the Tommy Boys, and all of that, that stuff that I can continue to do is all because of Lauren. And, um, and I can't, I couldn't have found a better, a better person to sort of give me my credentials than Lauren. It was kind of the rich man's Ted McGinley part that we grew up with in the seventies, right? That the handsome guy is kind of a dick. Yeah. And I did. That was, if, if there's, if there's any, what's the word I'm like sort of hesitation I have about all those movies is that it was such a cottage industry of rich, handsome Dick, which is why I always liked Tommy boy a lot because it was still in that genre, but he was like white trash, a grifter, a hustler, And it, it wasn't like smooth Mr. Ferrari guy from Wayne's World. We just did. We do the podcast podcast on the ringer called The Rewatchables, where we rewatch old movies that we've seen a million times. And we did Tommy Boy a couple months ago. And uh, to me, it's like the perfect comedy. It's Chris Farley, obviously his greatest moment that's been captured. It's perfect use of him. I love when people go on road trips. All the side characters are perfect. Like, it's just... It hits every check mark. And what's weird is it wasn't considered that successful when it came out, but now it's beloved. And it's so funny how that happens sometimes with comedies where it just it's almost like a bottle of wine. It has to ferment and, and yeah. kind of or whatever. It does. It's amazing. And I'm I'm thrilled to to be a part of it because it I, I just because I know intimately how it came about, what it was like to shoot, how it was perceived when it came out, that now, day in and day out, when pe- when I see how much Tommy Boy means to people, it blows my mind because I'm like Tommy Boy, and like in in, our, in like sort of the cone of silence when Spade and I are together, we're like, you found believe it, I'm Tommy Boy, but right, it is it is a really, I, I think the key is Spade and Farley's their charisma and their true friendship and their weird modern day um laurel and hardy is just so undeniable it's so undeniable and so great and they're they're acting i mean the right. the dramatic stuff in there is really touching and those two guys crush it in that movie was it weird to be a dick to chris farley who by all accounts was the most likable human being who ever existed it, it was it, i had so much fun playing that part i mean farley was Farley was great, but I knew I knew I was going to have a blast when I think it's the best entrance my any character I have ever played has in Tommy Boy, where I on the bus, I get off the bus. The kid behind me is making faces at me, a sweet little kid. And I fucking punch the window right in his face and then squeeze up the milk I'm drinking and throw it in a passing baby buggy. Yeah. I'm like this is awesome. What what made you? You said you've been sober for thirty years. What made you? Uh, what made you become sober? Was did you hit a point where you couldn't? Did, were you falling apart, or what was going on? 
I did. I everybody who who gets sober at some point reaches a bottom, and and some people's are 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 worse than others. You know, I I was never the kind of guy that got all that that drank or got fucked up on set ever. Uh, I'm 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 I am a professional pleasure to have in class. Yeah, and, and, and always have been. Um, but I was like, work hard, play hard, was was my motto. And you know, I I, I got to that age. I was about I was twenty six. And I started thinking about what I really wanted for my life. And I couldn't keep it together to have a, a real relationship with any one woman. And I, and that was a big part of it. I knew that I, that if I was still carousing, that was never going to happen. Um, I turned 26 and was just looking at my life and melancholy. My grandfather had just died. Um, and I had a sort of like, is this all there is? And, you know, moment and um i knew a couple people who gotten sober and they it had changed their lives and so um i did it i went to rehab for a month it was the greatest thing i ever did i had a by the way i had a blast there mm. uh i know it sounds shocking but i learned so much about why i was the way i was and it was it just was i was ecstatic to finally be like oh i don't have to do this anymore um, cause for me where it ended, people say, what was your bottom? Here's my bottom. You'll love this. My bottom was Monday night football. Monday night football became the bane of my fucking existence because it would be like, yo, Monday night football, come on guys. And we would all go over to my house and we'd all watch Monday night football. And we'd be drinking like you do. And then everybody would leave. I guess who would still be drinking. Hmm. And then it would be some more of this. And then I'd call somebody else and then they'd come over and then. So Monday night football often for me became Wednesday morning nightmare. So uh, that was not good. And, um, you know, being, being sober now 30 years is, uh, you know, it's given me everything, everything good in my life. You know, my wife, my family, my kids, my career. Um, and uh, I, I, I can't recommend it highly enough to, to people if they're out there and contemplating it. And here's the one thing, and then I'll stop my soapbox. The thing that kept me for from for the longest time uh from getting sober was i thought my life would be over ironically mm. i thought i literally thought well, wait a minute so the lakers are gonna win a final and i'm not gonna have a champagne what if i ever have a kid i'm not gonna like have a glass of you know whiskey with my bros what am i gonna do on the fourth of july i'm gonna be boring boring and and that thinking kept me from pulling the trigger for years and years and years and I've had way more fun sober this amount of time than I ever did in the 80s. And that's saying something. Interesting. Where where were you living in your heyday in the 80s? Oh, or was it multiple places? Oh, bro. This, this tells you all you need to know. The very first house I ever bought, it was in the Hollywood Hills. And I remember buying it because it was 12 minutes from the Hard Rock Cafe. Mm-hmm. If that isn't the most embarrassing, mortifying, and insightful look into the thinking. What street What street are we talking? I was How far Nichols, down are we? Nichols Canyon. I was oh, up, in, up in Nichols Canyon. It was very Hotel California. It was like, it, when you walked into the doors of that house, you knew exactly what the future for you was going to be. <laughs> was it like... Was it over the top, like a big portrait of yourself in the living room? And no, like, so no, 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 no. It was, it was, 
I mean, I, I not to pat myself. It's a party house. I think, I, I think I've always had pretty good taste. It was, it good. was very, um, Adrian line. Oh yeah. Meets Miami vice. Great. So like Michael Mann could have shot a movie. 100%, 100% Michael Mann. Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. In fact, when I sold it, I sold it to an Oscar winning production designer. Hmm. Um, can we talk Lakers really quick? Oh yeah. All right. I think we should end on this because I, I want you to come back. I want to save some stuff for the next time. Um, yeah, we have to. You were, you were there for a bunch. And I know you talked to Magic Johnson on your podcast. You were there for a bunch of the good ones in the eighties, so the glory days. You, you have to Bill, have to download my podcast next week for magic. Because I don't know if you ever have this in your life where you go, Hey, am I crazy or did such and such happen? Mm. You know, as time goes on, you, you go, I'm imagining this, or I'm making more of this than it actually was. Right. So as I think about my time with the Lakers, I thought I, I, I'm imagining it. It was never really like that. Or was it? And then I get magic on the podcast and we start going down the rabbit hole together. Yeah. And it is every bit of what I remember and more. It was extraordinary to be a part of that. And by the way, to be a part of it, I act like I had a triple double. I was a fucking guy out of ticket. That's all I was. But I was friends with all of them. I was, I traveled on the road with, with the team. If I wasn't shooting a movie, you know, I would, I would fill my social time, um, with, with, um, you know, basketball. I loved it. You never get credit when they rattle off all the celebrities from the Lakers era. It's always that the default is always Jack Nicholson, Diane Cannon, um, no. Flea. Flea gets in there. Not, not a lot of Rob Lowe. You need you need know. different PR for your basketball fandom. Well, I uh, I introduced to the court Exhibit A, the testimony of Magic Johnson, and he will tell you. <laughs> you know, I got banned from the hotel by Pat Riley. That's a badge of honor. Wait, <laughs> because he was worried about your influence on some of his players? 100%. With, with the, uh, the first Pistons final, in those days, the format was you were, it was like 2-3-2 two, two or whatever. Yeah. So you'd, you'd be stuck oh, on yeah. the road for like a, like a week. It just was forever. So we're in, you know, out in, in you know, the, it was the Superdome then. And we're out in whatever hotel out, out outskirts that we are and you know the, the the fans would show up and the girls would show up and riley would just look at me and shake his head like you little fucker and finally they they banned me from staying the same hotel as 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 the lakers and as magic pointed out on the podcast which made me laugh he goes yeah i remember that because you they they made you we couldn't be with our wives either so they put you in the hotel with the wives. And I thought, well, that isn't the smartest plan either. <laughs> who was, who was the most fun Laker other than magic? Oh, Michael Cooper. Come on. Really? Michael oh, Cooper. I wouldn't have guessed oh, yeah. that. Oh yeah. He was my, he was my other run. At, like he, he was the guy who would, you know, hit Mr. Chow's with you at midnight after the game. Michael Cooper. Hmm. I wouldn't have guessed that I, one. I um, I went out with Michael Cooper 
after, and you can do the stats on this one. It's a, it's the, it's the Detroit series. And I had him out late. That's all I'm going to say. He promptly went on a zero for like 40 shooting tear <laughs> to end the, to end the finals. That's why Riley didn't like me around. It's probably the right move. Did Kareem like you or no? Kareem didn't, didn't like a lot of yeah. people. Captain. I love the captain and captain is people describe, ask me like, what's Kareem like? And he, and this is Kareem. Like, let's say you crash landed in Antarctica and you barely survive for three months and you're walking across through a blinding, freezing Arctic snowstorm. And there's another fucking human being there and it's getting closer and closer. And you go, Oh my fucking God, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You'd be like, fuck, thank you, Kareem. And Kareem would go, hey, how you doing? That's right. Kareem. If you ran into Kareem in our, in our talk, he'd go, hey, how are you? He's very low-key. And um, he was very much kept to himself. Um, but the, the, the great move I learned from Kareem was early on before the Lakers had a, their own plane and they flew commercial, which wasn't often. Kareem would put a blanket over his entire body and sit there like a ghost. So you imagine he's seven, four. Yeah. With like a blanket on him. Just as people are filing in, getting their seats, putting their luggage on, he's just got a blanket over his entire face body. I was like, that's a good move. That's a good way to disappear. I did. I spent a year with magic cause we did TV together and we would, you know, we, sometimes we'd show up, we'd have like eight hours cause we'd be doing double headers. You'd have to come on the halftime. So we'd be, be, me, him, Jalen, and Wilbon. Right. And, and I was just, and I had the seat right next to him watching all these games and we were bored. And it was just like, I'm just going to ask magic questions. And I would just ask him. So we would talk about Kareem sometimes. And it was so interesting hearing him talk about Kareem. Like it was still like a big brother, older person, person he respect. And meanwhile, magic's like one of the most successful, uh, ex athletes of all time. He runs a company, but the way he talked about Kareem was still like, almost like he's talking about his dad. Um, well, you know, it's that, that's that interesting thing that people like, if someone was famous before you got famous, let's say, and then maybe they never work again and you're uber famous. When you meet them to you, they're still the top dog. Totally. So it's that thing is like he's magic will forever be the rookie that jumped into Kareem's arms at the end of the buzzer beater in San Diego in that first season. And Kareem totally. will be, will be the, the legend who goes easy kid. It's a long season. It's my favorite story. Well, yeah, it was a great one. Um, he told this, I hope I'm not talking at school. He told this story about when the, the famous game, when he wins, when he plays center, cause Kareem sprains his ankle and Kareem mm -hmm. doesn't go to Philly with them. Yep. They're up three, two, they win the 1980 finals. Magic has his iconic game. And he was saying the plane lands back in LA and Kareem Kareem's waiting for them. and goes on the plane and was so happy. And, and he was just like, I couldn't believe man cap. Seeing Cap like that, I just, just, he just didn't get like that. And he was just so happy and he's hugging people. And it was, and it was like, that meant more to magic than winning the finals MVP that he had like, please Kareem. Yeah. And it was, so it was a hundred percent genuine, you know? And, uh, 
I was I always really liked their relationship. He's Magic's a great guy. I'm I'm still pro Magic. We oh. only spent a year together, but he uh he was so much fun to talk to and was such a resource on 70s, 80s, 90s basketball, you know, because in the 70s he's playing college, but he's playing it's all the NBA players during the summer. So he had this whole I coached encyclopedia. His, his uh his his famous game that he used to have every summer at the um it was a, a, a oh, midsummer, the charity nights, game. midsummer nights magic it was called for the uh uh United Negro College Fund and he raised a ton of money and everybody showed for him. If Magic called you, you showed. And I remember the first time Magic and Jordan ever played basketball together. I was coach, I was their coach. I didn't have much to say to them other than be better. Um, and right. I think I, I, I think <laughs> that that team scored 149 points. I mean, no, no, sorry. More like 200. It, whatever right. it was, it, there was no defense involved. None. You know, so we had talked about doing a documentary about those, those games. Really? Because Magic, that year we spent together, Magic would always talk about, man, if we ever got all the tapes to those games and we kind of kicked oh. the tires on it, we couldn't figure out what the story was, but it was, he was just like, Every year I had the best players in the league and all of the celebrities and we would all have this game. And I think we videotaped it and we were like, what? Um, so we definitely uh, checked out. What I, was remember, the best? I remember there was a, I can't imagine, this is how bad a coach I was. At some point in the game, I had Magic and Jordan on the bench. Next oh, to Jesus. Me. Clearly, I must not have been any good. But the reason I remember it was Carl Malone, who was a rookie that year, I believe, came flying down on the wing right in front of us as we were sitting there. And it was like a, a train going by, you know, when the air goes by after and it like ruffled our hair. <laughs> wow. And I'll, and I'll never forget. There's a beat of silence and uh, magic turned to Michael and goes, would you ever take a charge from that man? And Michael looked at him and said, fuck no. Well, and then Carl Malone learned how to put his knee up as he did that too. So he was basically like, you're staying out of my way or you're getting yeah. a knee really hard in the chest. What was the best Laker game you ever went to? Just out of curiosity. What's the uh, number I, one? I, I mean, it has to be the baby hook game in the Boston, Boston garden. I was at that um, game. You went to that game. Yep. I, and I tell the story on the podcast. It's, it's really kind of a insane story in my, about how I got there. Cause I had to, I had to get, I had to be taken out on a Zodiac in Long Island Sound under a blanket for a seaplane to get me. So the people making the movie didn't know I was leaving. Oh my and, God. Oh, it's crazy. And then I get there just to tip off and I'm seated next to ML Carr and we start fighting. And so then I have to be taken out of the stands and then they take <laughs> me up to the Celtics <laughs> owner's box of all places. And Irvin had never heard this story. Yeah. And so I'm sharing this with him on the podcast. He was like, wait, you were with the owners of the Celtics? I'm like, yes. And I said, do you remember we were down 14? He goes, oh, yeah. And I'll never forget Michael Cooper being wide open. And in and, and, and those days, nobody shot three-pointers. And if you shot a three-pointer with nobody under the basket, you were sitting your ass down the next two minutes. That's how different the NBA is now. But Coop pulls up with nobody around the basket, drains a three, and I turn to the owners of the Celtics, and I said, we're going to win this game. And then, of course, Magic hit the famous baby hook, and so that yeah. But you sure thought you thought Bird shot was going in at the end, though. One, I'll tell you how. Not only did I think it was going in because the old garden was so steep, the 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 boxes were so high up, I could look directly down into the cylinder. That's yeah. how high up they were. So when Bird took that shot, and we talked about this too, 
That shot I thought was going in. Me too. It did go in and out, I, but when it left his hand, I thought we're fucked. We, um, that's my toughest loss. I'm a, as a diehard Celtic fan, I was sitting mid court. I was online with the shot. So I'm sitting, he's releasing in the basket and it's dead on. And he Head missed on. it by a thumb, a thumbnail. But, and the crowd had like the loudest, <sighs> like, and then it, it was, just went silent. It was, there's never been a game like that. There's never been a game like that, right? No, because the Celtics, they were defending champs. They lose Len Bias, all the injuries, and they're just fighting and fighting and fighting. And that Laker team was so good. And it really just seemed like, oh my God, we might steal this game. And, and then the sky, I mean, the key to the sky hook was the miss. Kareem free throw where Michael Thompson goes over Mikhail's back and they don't call the foul. I, I'll never get over that. No call. It's, no, it still it hurts. It still no hurts. Call. That was a no call. It was a foul. You got called. Wait, so, so you're trying over to the tell back. me in that you're trying tainted. to tell me in that era of basketball. Yeah, I am. That, that you want a a ticky tack foul yes. call. We're in Boston. You're in our house. We get that call. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, you keep you keep dreaming. Why, why weren't you ever in a basketball movie or were you? And I don't remember it. What would it have been? Uh, there was never one done while I was, I mean, Hoosiers, I would have been too old. Um, and what blue chip, blue chips. You, you could have been like a hotshot GM. Who's his own worst enemy. You could have done like the, I the could, Oxford I, I blues could. blueprint. Well, you know, I am, I'm developing the Rob Polinka story. I'm going to play Rob Polinka. That's so weird. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You're the Lakers GM who's who looks like you. This team that you loved, and now the GM is like you could you could go out as brothers. Um, I actually we did an event for Lake season ticket holders. Jeannie, but and I've known the Bus family forever, obviously. And Jeannie said, "Hey, why don't you come on and do a, a bit?" So we had all the season ticket holders, and she kept saying, "Rob's going to come out and talk to you about the season. Rob's got a lot of ideas about the players." You know, Rob, and then I came out. That was going to be Palinka. That was oh, great. that's great. Yeah. Um, all right. Listen, I really appreciate this. This was really fun. I could talk to you for seven hours. Uh, good yeah, luck with your too. podcast. Good luck with the, uh, you're still doing the Fox show, right? Oh yeah. I got, um, a mental samurai, which is my competition show and, uh, a nine one one lone star, both coming back, uh, next year. Staying busy. Uh, pleasure talking to you. Nice to finally meet you. Good luck with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it again, man. Thank you, brother. All right. Thanks so much to Rob Lowe and Don Cheadle. Thanks to Simply Safe. The home security for right now and feeling safe at home has never been more important. Designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box. Place the sensors. Plug it in. Your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Go to Simply Safe with two eyes. SimplySafe.com slash BS. Get a free HD camera for my listeners. And since we're heading into the weekend, HBO Max, new streaming platform. All of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies and shows. It's all of HBO series, blockbuster movies, timeless classics like Casablanca and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, new Max originals for everybody, all your favorites all in one place for just $14.99 per month. I would highly recommend the Sex in the City binge watch. That show has aged in a really interesting way. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. Free trial for new customers only. Restrictions do apply. We'll be back Sunday night. See you then. I